This is TV Podcast Industries with the second part of our Penny Dreadful rewatch of season one. We're talking about episodes five to eight. Welcome back, fellow Penny Faithful. This is TV Podcast Industries, and we're watching Penny Dreadful. This is part two, where we're talking about season one, episodes five to eight. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hello there, Penny Faithful. I am one of your other hosts, John. Welcome back on our rewatch of Penny Dreadful. Yes, another fantastic and mesmerizing second half to Penny Dreadful. Um, I think certainly for me, there were things that I actually liked more um, in this rewatch, I think the first time I watched Penny Dreadful, I always thought that the second half of this season was actually slightly weaker than the first half. Right. Weirdly, uh, whether that was just because it delved more into just the relationships of Malcolm, Vanessa and Mina and their families. Mm. I'm not too sure. But this time around, um, for sure, I think it absolutely is as good and holds up with uh, the first part of that we we looked at there recently. Yeah. So um, yeah, this was this was really good um, for me. Absolutely. Uh, just a reminder: the way that we're looking at these episodes, we're going to be releasing each episode individually on our Patreon feed over at Patreon.com/slash/TVPodcastIndustries. Then these big ones, these uh, t- these four or five episodes that we're talking about, we're releasing them on our main feed at TVPodcastIndustries.com. We're going to be talking about all of the episodes from season one to season three. That's a total of twenty-seven episodes. I'm going to have all of those out on our feeds. By the time the fourth season of Penny Dreadful, Penny Dreadful City of Angels, is released at the end of April. Now, there's not supposed to be much connection between this series of Penny Dreadful and the new series. In fact, there is an actor that appears playing a different character in the new series, uh, and he was originally in the first series. Rory Kinnear is coming back for Penny Dreadful City of Angels, but playing a different character, we understand. So there's probably not going to be a huge amount of connections between these three seasons, but I suppose hopefully the vibe of the show will carry on as it's the same producers and the same people behind the show with John Logan, who was the showrunner for this show, also writing and creating the second show, uh, Penny Dreadful City of Angels. So uh, that's what we're hoping for is kind of get the the vibe of these first three seasons so we can take that on with us into the next show. Absolutely. I mean, certainly the the mythical horror folklore kind of element of this uh, looks like it will feed through uh, as well. Mm. I think with City of Angels taking on a more Mexican, uh, North American uh, folklore mm. rather than that folklore um, being written about for the new industrial and mechanized and scientific age by those Victorian novelists such as Bram Stoker, Mary Shelley and Oscar Wilde. Mm-hmm. So this will be, I think, certainly the 
the hub of it moving through uh, into then Penny Dreadful City of Angels. Exactly, exactly. And as you probably know, if you've been listening to our previous four episodes, uh, these are much shorter episodes than our main ones. Usually, we do we do talk sometimes a little longer than we expect. Uh, so we're going to jump straight into our discussion of episode five, Closer Than Sisters. This episode was directed by Koki Geidrick, and it was written by showrunner John Logan, as have all the episodes been so far. John, do you want to tell us the synopsis for this episode? Sure. Vanessa recalls her close friendship with Mina Harker. She remembers when Sir Malcolm returned from one of his many trips to Africa and regaled them with tales of cannibals and the like. One night after dinner, while playing in the maze, Vanessa saw her mother and Sir Malcolm making love. It was a changing point in her life. On the night before Mina's marriage to Captain Branson, she seduces him, leading to a cancelled wedding and the end of their friendship when Mina catches them in the act. Vanessa undergoes a lengthy period of madness and a horrific period in the insane asylum. An encounter with her enemy leads to the death of her mother and a visit from Mina, who desperately needs her help. All about Vanessa this episode, definitely. And I do remember watching this the first time. It's a weird one. I'm not a big fan of period dramas. There's a lot of them that used to be on the BBC, which were translated from Victorian era novels, that kind of stuff that were on the BBC. And I remember when this episode first aired, it was filmed uh, in Ireland, as we've mentioned before, there's a lot of filming that went on in Ireland. It was filmed in a place I've probably been to hundreds of times the the beach that uh, that Vanessa and Mina meet on we've been there quite a lot of times and it just felt so standard costume drama at the beginning of the episode so unfortunately at the time when it was released I wasn't hugely captivated by this particular episode now looking back and I think you mentioned it earlier on John now looking back on this episode it's so formative and so important that you have an episode focusing on how Vanessa, this mysterious of all mysterious characters in the show, how she became what she is, I suppose. So uh, so I think at the time, because it was on TV and there were ad breaks in it and all that kind of stuff, I think I probably watched about 15 minutes of it and went, yeah, maybe this episode isn't the greatest of episodes. But now looking back on it, there's so much interesting stuff happened. Definitely. And, and I think it it's not just Vanessa and Mina, it's the Ives family and it's the Murray family and uh, and everything uh, around that. So, you know, the, there's a really nice moment um, where uh, Vanessa talks about the gates of our two houses were always open until they weren't. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a rupture that occurs between these two families that that their children play together, their parents socialize together, yeah. and there is a rupture here. Um, and I, I think that's really, uh, really interesting. And, and I love like how this flashback um in a sense starts with the the writing of letters of Vanessa to Mina mm-hmm. you know my dearest Mina my darling friend and it closes with um her sealing up the letter and putting it into a trunk with a whole range of other uh, letters as well you know this flashback is as a written letter from Vanessa to Mina mm-hmm. which the letters are never posted. Yeah. Um, and I, I found that really, uh, really uh, nicely done as well as it starts on the beach and ends on the beach. You know, at the beginning, it's these children along, you know, Vanessa, Mina, as well as Peter mm-hmm. running along the beach, carefree, fancy free in that sense. Um, and then by the end, it is Vanessa 
um, after her period of madness and illness, as as the doctors believe, mm-hmm. walking along that beach, being visited by an image of Mina, who is then kind of dragged away from her subconsciousness. Yeah. And um, so th- th- there's some nice bookends to this episode, which is ultimately a flashback episode. Yeah. Uh, and I, I really, uh, really enjoyed just how the flashback was told as a written letter, yeah. which for that time, that was the main form of communication. Absolutely. I like the framing of it as well, where she's opening the letter with Mina saying to her, I used to write these letters once a month to you, then maybe once a week. And now I'm writing them almost every day. There will come a time where I'm just writing letters over and over again, getting out my mind onto paper effectively. So, uh, And the point that she doesn't send them is kind of saying, even though these are supposed to be letters for to Mina apologizing to her, they're actually just more for Vanessa to get out all of the things she wants to say to her best friend, uh, effectively. But the way we've been talking about these episodes is picking a big moment from each of the episodes to talk about them because there's so much that goes on in this show. We've got to make sure that we discuss the big things that happened in each episode. So there's little things we're, we're not going to talk about. But John, do you want to give us the big thing that stood out to you about episode five from the show? Yes, I will begin it with a quote. I whispered and something listened, mm. uh, says Vanessa. It, it, it is the madness of Vanessa this is what her family, this is what the established medical um, community believe at this time, that she is descending into madness, mm-hmm. uh, that she, you know, she is sent to an insane asylum uh, for treatments and so on. I love that the medical practice at that time is that this is a mental illness with a a physical manifestation Mm -hmm. but ultimately as we move through this episode we realize that there is a curse um to vanessa that she's not simply having a breakdown because of these complex interactions that we've seen throughout this flashback between her and mina between her viewing sir malcolm and her wife uh, in the throes of passion within the maze mm-hmm. um it is that um she is cursed she has um in various acts has whispered and has let something in. Something has listened to her and has effectively possessed her here. This is a a, a foretelling, effectively, of what we see in episode seven. Um, But it plays out as an illness, um, as a mental illness Mm -hmm. uh, within this episode. Um, And I, I really, really enjoyed that contrast between what the outside is is seeing of her and what she is then experiencing. I think that's a really good uh, aspect to this. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like Vanessa's power is to kind of open the door between our world and the afterlife in some senses or whatever way you'd like to describe it. She's praying to God for forgiveness for something, but God's not listening anymore, but somebody else is, is kind of the way it's it's played. She's kind of opening the gateway to a spirit world and letting in something else to possess her um, is what seems to happen earlier on in this episode. So I think that's a really interesting way to play it. You know, they're trying to kind of talk about the religious aspects of Vanessa. We see her praying many times uh, throughout this series, but it seems like her fervent prayer is so powerful that it's opening the gateway yeah absolutely and again it's what's the trigger point here is it um her sexual act with mina's um husband to be captain Mm. branson in in the conservatory or you know the moment where she 
kind of faints effectively uh, or blacks out is when that door, uh, that gate between the two houses of Ives and Murray mm. is shut in her face by Sir Malcolm after um, everything has has come to light that, yeah. she, that Captain Branson has been sent off because he was effectively having sex with with Vanessa and Mina caught them. So I really found the intensity of it all fascinating for a flashback. And yeah. ultimately what we get after she's come out of the, um, the mental asylum, which quick little sidestep onto that, the, the banning clinic, um, I just thought was beautifully shot that the starkness of the tiles, the whiteness, Everything about it, it really does play to your notion of what a insane or mental asylum is. Um, you know, people doing unspeakable things in a sense to a human being mm -hmm. out of medical practice. Um, and of the time we have that hydrotherapy where she's effectively hosed down. Yeah which um, certainly I could use that sort of to wake up in the morning. Um, <laughs> After her ice bath and then the then the, the um, hose being shot at her full blast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like I'm, I was surprised that arm didn't fly off with the power of that hose. Like. <laughs> Definitely. And, and then you get this lobotomy where mm -hmm. they drill into her um, into her skull. Yeah. Um, I, I think if I remember rightly, so certainly back then, the, the medical notion was that they needed to relieve pressure mm -hmm. from the brain as well. I've and that's that why they were kind of, that was part of the reason uh, why they did it. Yeah. But ultimately, we get this first sense of a, a deeper, more um, sinister curse or, or possession when, uh, and I really enjoy this, when Vanessa starts to recount, I suppose, the past questionable exploits of the doctor who is consulting with her and with her family, Dr. Matthew Benning, mm -hmm. uh, where she starts talking about his past exploits in Africa. Uh, it seems like that was um, a, a fairly questionable time, probably doing untold kind of nastiness to the local inhabitants. Uh, and this is where, um, you know, he immediately sort of gets her into the, the different treatments that are so brutal. Um, and you kind of then question his medical judgment. Is this to effectively shut her up because she is privy somehow to his his um sort of hidden past mm. uh, through this possession yeah and this moves through back to her home with her mother um and you really then are, are left with no doubt when you think she's being visited by sir malcolm murray mm -hmm. and then you get those dark demonic pupils uh, that come in you know he isn't uh, as he appears to be um and it's not Malcolm, it's, I think she quotes him as the serpent. Mm. I think Timothy Dalton is absolutely excellent here. Um, you know, he, he's talking about the sight beyond this world, drawn to the, that she is drawn to the deep ocean, the dark whisper. And that, yes, darkness was spoken, um, and, Vanessa listened to it. Yeah. Um, he, and he, he gives a nice reference to Keats's Ode to um, the Nightingale, which effectively is about rejecting optimism and it explores the transience and mortality of, of, of death, the experiences right. of death. And um, so 
you know, it, it's very much about death, um, depression, all these negative elements about human existence leading to mortality, mm-hmm. uh, which is really interesting. What I read was that this idea of negative capability where you, you actually, um, to achieve an artistic high and to progress the artistic nature of the work that you're doing so this was for keats you forget about the philosophical coherence of what it is that you're talking about so it can seem improbable or illogical and in a sense that's what they're saying about vanessa that's happening to her Mm -hmm. as well and she's going into this negative space Mm -hmm. and no one outside can understand what she's doing but there is some kind of she's touched by something um uh, and she can't control it in that sense it's a really interesting one isn't it because at the time the things that are visited upon her i suppose at the benning clinic um they're things that would have been done if you felt that a pressure on the brain was causing a problem with your patient effectively so i'm not sure whether matthew benning is putting her through these individual things because of um what she says about him he believes that the things she says about him come from her feeling that she's possessed so she's going through the standard medical practices but they are barbaric to our modern eyes what's happening to her they're absolutely barbaric and it gives that whole sense that this is like an episode of uh, american horror story in a way yeah episode that it's that feeling that she has absolutely no control over what's happening to her she's being passed from room to room by these people in the Benning Clinic, um, giving her all of these treatments that they would give her. But she's a believer in the spiritual and the occult has possessed her effectively. So um, they're not willing to accept that as any kind of explanation that, that this is happening. They just believe it's a pressure on her brain. So they're going through all of these processes. What, what I love is the end result of the whole thing, because it hasn't cured her of anything because they're not treating what's actually happening to her. She is possessed here. You can't treat possession with these medical practices what the end result of it is her mother comes in and sees her absolutely being possessed and dies on the spot because she's seeing something that is absolutely impossible happening in front of her eyes. So that's the death of her mother. I I love how that plays out because there's nothing that her mother could have done. Her mother is is very good uh, to her. She's trying to go through all the proper channels to solve this thing, this problem that she sees in her daughter. Um, But the one thing she didn't possibly envisage was what's happening to her is a possession and it needs to be dealt with by maybe an exorcism or by something within the occult that might have sorted this out for her daughter but there's no option that her mother would ever have sought that and it ends in her death yeah i mean it's really shocking that moment Mm -hmm. where is she writhing because she's being possessed or i immediately felt because it precedes um malcolm murray there and realizing that he is this dark creature that is uh, about to possess her that that it's a a, a sexual element um and so that there is you know a lot of ghost effing effectively going on here, um, <laughs> which effectively shocks her mother to death in, yeah. in that sense. Yeah, um, but certainly, yes, everything uh, leads to Vanessa's mother dying. And again, it's another point of contention mm-hmm. here uh, within her own family, but also with the Murrays. Yeah. 
Like, it's so sad, you know, she's left alone once again by, you know, it seems like her father is very standoffish about everything that's going on. It's her mother that takes her to the doctor. It's her mother that wants to hear all of the information the doctor has because she's the one trying to save her. Her father doesn't seem to be very present at all in these situations, no. in these discussions at all. He's downstairs asleep, isn't he, after having too many drinks while her mother comes upstairs to visit her and leads Peter into the house. Everything that's being done is through her mother. So um, so when she dies, surely that's a massive loss for Vanessa again. Again, another very sad moment for her. Um, my major point for the episode is probably the other side of it, just because they deal with the early relationships of all of these characters that you've kind of heard about a lot. Um, you've heard about Mina multiple times and you've only see her, seen her um, in this present, I suppose, where she's been captured by the Master and with the vampires. So seeing the three of them as young kids, uh, Mina, Vanessa and Peter, you mentioned the uh, the walk on the beach at the start where they're all quite innocent, but it even opens with that idea where Vanessa's going, I think we should hop in the ocean and swim as far as we can possibly go and Mina being scared about that. Mina, uh, not as adventurous as Vanessa. Yeah. Um, and as well, we see Peter's also not as adventurous as Vanessa. So it kind of harkens to that idea that Vanessa is the daughter that Malcolm should have had. She's not just the daughter Malcolm should have had. She's the child that Malcolm should have had. She's more adventurous than Peter, and she's more conscious of the world than Mina. Yeah. And she also has this dark side to her, which is what Malcolm deserves for all the horrible things he's done in the world. That's how he meant it as well. well. So yeah. she has all three of those pieces altogether. No, I, I think that kind of element uh, really comes out in the infidelity of Malcolm mm -hmm. with Mrs. Eves in, in the maze as well. Uh, and then it's reflected with Vanessa having that infidelity of sorts with Mina's husband-to-be oh, yeah. because he they're getting married the, fault, the, the day after, but yeah. Mina catches them. And that links part of this notion that Vanessa is a daughter that he deserved as well because mm -hmm. they are, in effect, doing the same thing. As you say, Malcolm's darkness is hidden away by the fact that he does it abroad. Yeah. Um, whatever that may Except be to, to, to local... Um, to the the local indigenous people that he where he's exploring, um, whereas Vanessa's is internal in, yeah. in in a sense. But isn't Vanessa trying to punish Mina for finding someone almost? Um, she's found a kind of perfect life that's laid out in front of her and Vanessa's kind of hasn't gotten there and she tries to approach Peter to go to that life that they're supposed to have together but Peter's having none of it um, so is it just her trying to punish Mina because Mina seems to be going down this perfect path because there's a darkness in Vanessa yeah I, I think there's an element of that I mean I, I think the great thing about this this concept of the gate between the two houses and it being bookended by letters is that between all of this what we really get is a massively complicated relationship between all these people and um, and in particular between vanessa and mina were yes they are best friends but at the same time yeah i in my notes i kind of put there's an envy and uh, she's jealous of yeah. mina for getting um the the captain, in a sense, and about to get married, and and her advances to Peter, um, you know, she tries to kiss him, and he he kind of recalls away, uh, you know, and Peter's seen as weak. Yeah, Mina, who as well, Vanessa may think of as weak compared to her, mm -hmm. um, has gotten this, um, very sure of himself captain of the in the british army mm -hmm. um and so th there is a jealousy there's an envy um as well as that they love one another and there is um 
a best friendship there between them. It's so kind of complicated and these things actually happen. And that's one of the things I loved about this is that all those things can be true at the same time. And it doesn't mean that they're not friends. Um, It's just, it's very, very uh, complicated. And so, yes, I, I would definitely agree with you there as well. I think with mrs ives and malcolm and then what happens with captain branson that's just again another indicator of of this kind of reflection of malcolm and yeah. uh, and vanessa ives which yeah. i think is just really really uh well written it's so good it is absolutely and, and you know it should absolutely mentioned here as well it's a bit of a light touch in the show and it's one of the things i don't really like about the show it's but it's a standard at the time there is a read on this that Vanessa is in love with Mina and she's not jealous that Mina has found the perfect life for herself that Vanessa's jealous about being left behind by the woman that she loves effectively um it's also read into this as well that Peter is spurning the advances of Vanessa because he's gay as well and you're supposed to read that in as the audience it's one of the things that I'd never really enjoyed on TV over the last 10 years is where the audience has to make up their own mind whether the character is a gay character or a lesbian character they put out these ideas and you can make your choice as to whether Vanessa is just jealous of the fact that Mina's going to be living in this perfect future exactly as she planned. Captain Branson is a man with a moustache exactly as she wanted when she was 13 years old. That's who she's going to get married to. Is Vanessa jealous just because she has the perfect life and Vanessa doesn't think that she's going to get that? Or is Vanessa jealous because she's in love with Mina and feels that that's the end of that relationship? Um, the name of the episode is Closer Than Sisters. You know, could was it supposed to mean that these two were supposed to be partners or not? And it's left open for you in shows like this over the last 10 years we're finally getting shows where you do have characters who are absolutely lesbian characters in love with friends and those actual discussions are happening but at this time it feels like it's just left open there's that rather read of it that potentially the reason why peter is so weak as described by vanessa and why he spurns her advances is because peter's gay um i don't like that it's just left open to the audience all the time it always seems to happen in these shows um it's mentioned about the fact that when peter goes off with his father he's he's a weak boy trying to prove to his father that he's good enough for him and the read on that could be that Peter's gay, but it's just not on screen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's in there. But to back back to my main point from the episode, the the piece I feel is used so well to show the differences between each of these three characters, between Mina and Vanessa and Peter, is they're dealing with taxidermy. All three of them are involved in taxidermy, something that none of us practice now. We have TV and video games now instead. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that, you know, it's described that Mina deals with the basic. Mina deals with just the normal stuff, stuffing squirrels and normal things that are going on around the garden. Peter is constantly critical of his own work, regardless of Vanessa saying that it's really good work. He keeps feeling that he's not as good at making things feel alive or not as good at what you're supposed to accomplish. He's trying to judge himself against how everybody else does taxidermy. Whereas you see from Vanessa, she does it as an art form. She wants to make sure they look as alive as possible. That beautiful, and I'm not a big fan of taxidermy, but that beautiful stuffed uh, eagle that she has, that, 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 in flight, in motion, where she's put some mirrors behind the eyes to give it that alive feeling. But also, it's kind of a form of magic to her. She says, you must give it a name, because only when something is given a name, can it be alive. So that is her basic form of magic as well. So all three of these characters are quite exemplified, I suppose, within this taxidermy analogy uh, being used in all of them. So I think that's quite interesting. And I do, I do like that 
um, Vanessa uses that to put down Mina before she sleeps with her future husband, uh, Captain Branson. She kind of says she just deals in the basic here's my stuff kind of thing. So, uh, so I like that. And just one other thing on the taxidermy in the mirrors in the eyes, you know, that the phrase, the eyes are the mirror of one's soul. Um, it's interesting that Vanessa's putting mirrors inside the eyes of these creatures to make them look alive because then it's reflecting you back into yourself when you're looking in the eyes. So is she seeing their life inside these stuffed birds as her own life inside of herself? Yeah. You know, it, it, it's just, it's it's a fascinating kind of piece. If you're doing a flashback and putting in all of these pieces you said earlier on, it makes it feel so alive and so vibrant. These, this flashback uh, feels so urgent. Um, and is that, that's because it's so well detailed, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Those are the main points on episode five. Any, any other notes that you have on the episode, John? The only one I have is Gladys Murray, uh, Sir Malcolm's wife. Um, and it kind of comes to the point of, uh, the relationship between Mina, Vanessa and Peter, but it's, it's the relationship of, of Malcolm with, you know, his wife, very formal relationship. Um, almost as though he's not happy to be back from his travels. You know, Peter is absolutely enthusiastic for his dad returning. Uh, but, uh, you know, because his son, son, seemingly wants to be an explorer to please his dad but it seems as though malcolm is distant with him yeah. and his his most loving hug um and connection on return from africa back to his home is with his daughter mina and vanessa where he hugs them together as one yeah. um so again uh really interesting in, in terms of that idea of these are his two daughters yeah. and which is the one that he deserves mina or vanessa and i i like the point out that it's it's almost an equal hug between the two of them you know it doesn't seem to treat them as a separate entity almost um peter comes along to him and is like really excited to see him home and he kind of says hi son there you go there's your gift and then walks off and gives a hug to both girls um and it feels like he doesn't really care about peter um i don't think he even looks at peter for the rest of that scene if i remember rightly he is talking to the two, talking to the young girls, giving them a hug, and then sees his wife come into the room. Um, and as she cries, as he arrives home, cries with joy, I presume, that, that he's back and safe and sound and not lost a leg in Africa this time, you know? Um, and he just goes, we'll have none of that. Uh, stop it, kind of thing, to his yeah. wife. He doesn't care at all about her feelings. It's, that's not the way we have a relationship. Yeah. Kind of and it's a formal peck on a cheek. Yeah. Yet, you know, a few moments later, after the big welcome home meal with his neighbours from the Ives household, mm -hmm. he's uh, in the maze having a bit of nooky-nooky, um, you know, hot sexual nooky-nooky with uh, Vanessa's mother. Exactly, exactly. Um, one other thing I just wanted to comment on uh, in here, I know it sounds weird, but the de-aging of Timothy Dalton in this episode and I didn't notice it for the first four episodes, but he's looked older in the four episodes than I think of Timothy Dalton in the first four episodes. And in the fifth episode here, as it's supposed to be, you know, 20 years beforehand, he genuinely looks the way I expect Timothy Dalton to look. So I don't know whether they aged him up for the first four episodes and then cut his hair differently and dyed a bit more of the grey out for the fifth episode. And he had and a tan as well. And he had a bit of a tan. But I don't know whether it's just that they did or whether they've done a really good job and some kind of CGI on him or uh, some kind of work uh, with, with makeup work to make him look younger. But he generally looks more vibrant and younger in the fifth episode than he did in the other four, if that makes sense. I just thought it was an interesting touch that they did. I uh, also want to call out Vanessa's 
mother, uh, Mrs. Ive, played by Anna Chancellor. The reason why I want to call her out is because she played Frances Gaunt on Pennyworth, which we talked about last year. Does she only go for shows with Penny in it? Is that the way it goes? Maybe. <laughs> but she's a great actress. Really like seeing her on screen. And I do think her scenes with Vanessa and her death scene, I suppose, are, are, are quite integral to the story. So uh, really good to have a, a great actress in there like Anna Chancellor. Yeah, it was great to see her in uh, in this episode. Good mm-hmm. to see her uh, around the table feasting the feasting in the maze, uh, <laughs> and then ultimately uh, dining out to death after um, seeing her daughter in a very uncompromising position mm-hmm. uh, on the bed with a ghost, well, effectively yeah. that she couldn't see. Yeah. No wonder she died. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's it for our episode five discussion. If you want to send in any thoughts about Penny Dreadful, make sure you send in Penny for your thoughts to feedback at TV Podcast Industries. We'd love to hear any thoughts that you have on Penny Dreadful. We know there's 27 episodes to go and we know um, you may not get through them as quickly as we're getting through them, but we'd love to hear your thoughts about, uh, about Penny Dreadful. We'll take a little break and we'll be back with our episode six discussion after this message from Into the Night, the Moon Knight podcast. Hi, I'm one of the high priests of Conchu Ray, and I have the sacred privilege of providing you, the loony listener, with a podcast honouring Marvel's very own Moon Knight. So join me and a host of others at Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or support the show by becoming a Patreon member. Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. It's time to get your Conchu on. Welcome back, fellow Penny faithful. This is Derek, one of your hosts of TV Podcast Industries. We're talking about episode six of Penny Dreadful, What Death Can Join Together. Hello there, fellow Penny faithful. I am one of your other hosts, John. Yes, what a great line that was from Victor Frankenstein oh, yes. as well. What life divides, only death can join together. Uh, really kind of nice twist on the normal marriage rights um, that are, are normally given mm-hmm. about what love can join together. Yeah, only death, death can tear apart. Yeah, yes. Yeah, quite quite interesting idea, isn't it? Let's get into our discussion about episode six of Penny Dreadful. As we mentioned before, what we're doing is talking about our major point, our major moment from each of the episodes as we go through all 27 episodes of Penny Dreadful before the release of Penny Dreadful City of Angels. Once again, this episode is directed by Koki Geidrick and written by showrunner John Logan. John, do you want to give us a summary of this episode? Sure. Vanessa senses Mina's whereabouts to be on a ship in the Port of London. So Malcolm scans the shipping news for any clues and he, Sembene and Ethan head for the docks. They locate a ship that sailed from Egypt several months ago but has been quarantined since its arrival. The hold is filled with vampires and also Mina, who is taken away before she can be rescued. Meanwhile, Dorian Gray invites Vanessa on an adventure and they later have dinner together. While having sex, Vanessa is possessed by her evil spirit. Elsewhere, Victor Frankenstein completes the autopsy on Fenton and finds nothing unexpected. However, Professor Van Helsing tells him of the existence of vampires. While Brona's health continues to deteriorate, she tells Ethan she regrets her behaviour towards him the previous evening at the Grand Guignol. It's very difficult to say Guignol. Guignol, Guignol. It's a bit like the director, Koki uh, Geidrick. Uh, Geidrick is is spelt very differently than I would have thought. uh, And I keep thinking of 
let's do the hokey cokey every time you say his name but he is delivering some great direction here i was told when we started podcasting what six years ago at this stage (laughs) um i was always told that just speak with confidence if you don't know a name speak with confidence and you should be able to pass through it just don't point out when you know you've said something wrong so thanks john (laughs) i'm hoping i've pronounced his name correctly in the last two episodes i think so (laughs) uh john do you want to give us your big moment from episode six this was a pretty big episode really, it so. was uh, and it was really difficult to kind of think what i should pull out here but i've taken professor van helsing mm-hmm. that we've already seen earlier uh, in um, the series where he's he's talking about the the blood condition he's the consultant hematologist mm-hmm. um but he has a more intimate discussion here with um with victor frankenstein mm-hmm. and he talks about um that Malcolm Murray doesn't know what he is haunting, yet he does quite intimately. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about his knowledge of vampires. Uh, and I think one of the things that really was nice here was the link to um, a Penny Dreadful called Varney the Vampire by James Malcolm Reimer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, whilst this was folklore, it did capture the truth mm-hmm. uh, that there were vampires out there. He also talks about his intimate knowledge of vampires. We heard of Hannah's Wink uh, previously, uh, the technique that he used um, to determine uh, the vampire blood effectively. Yes, named after his wife, wasn't it? Named after his wife, where then he matter-of-factly tells Victor that he drove a stake through her heart and cut off her head because mm-hmm. she had been turned she had been turned by this creature that samalcom is is hunting and really has very little knowledge of, of what it's about it, yeah. it, its background so I, I thought this was really nicely done absolutely and another interesting character for penny dreadful as we mentioned before along with victor frankenstein and dorian gray you know another character from fiction that's being brought into um the these stories on penny dreadful someone that comes along with their own added pressure i suppose of who they are um it's interesting that we're seeing um, Van Helsing towards the end of his life here. So he's already gone through all of his adventures going around the world trying to kill vampires or trying to hunt down Dracula effectively, yeah. which is where he's from. Um, but he's already gone through all of those adventures and he's getting to the end of his life meeting this young guy in Victor Frankenstein and telling him, I used to be obsessed with my work so much so that I was able to kill my wife when she was turned. I was able to drive a stake through her heart and cut off her head, even though I loved her more than life itself. But he's imparting that wisdom to Victor to not fall into his work so much. And I don't think he understands how much his work will affect uh, Van Helsing, but he's telling him not to fall into his work so much that he is not following on the dreams and love that he should be able to follow on as a young man, because um, Van Helsing is effectively saying here, I wasted a lot of my life doing all of these things on my own when I could have spent more time with the woman he loved. So, uh, so I think that's a really important conversation that they have. And because the character comes along with that pressure of being a major character in Dracula as a novel, I think it's quite a shocking exit from the show that we have, right? Definitely. I mean, I, I, I think, um, you know, just before we go on to that shocking yeah. exit, it, it, it is the, you know, the parallel lives of Victor and Van Helsing, you know, this obsession with the work. And I, I really like that intimate moment, as you say, where uh, Van Helsing is kind of cautioning him against being too obsessed mm-hmm. where everything else um, is blotted out uh, from 
uh, Victor's life. Yeah. I think the other interesting thing is is James Malcolm Reimer with Varney the Vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether this was this Penny Dreadful was used or maybe partly an inspiration to Bram Stoker, but effectively that this came before um, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mm-hmm. So that there is this element here where Bram Stoker took a uh, a penny dreadful, you know, th- this, I suppose, slashy um, horror sort of throwaway, di- very digestible throwaway, and added this this law around it uh, in, in Dracula. But I, I, I like the fact as well that, I- in a sense, Van Helsing's kind of phrase that um, whilst it was folklore, it still captured the truth um, that in a sense, Bram Stoker tried to put a truth around the notion that these creatures exist right. within his novel. Yeah. And I thought that was um, really uh, nicely done. Yeah, the Penny Dreadfuls themselves were serialized stories coming out every week in newspapers or even their own short form published. I think we mentioned it before that they were like the comic books of their day um, where they were coming out every week, which led me to make the connection instantly. I don't know whether you remember this movie as well as I do. I'm sure you do, John, of course. The Lost Boys. Yes. Uh, great film. But the Frog Brothers and the Lost Boys, yeah. who own the comic book shop, when Sam comes to the town and his brother Michael, they come to the town for the first time and they discover there's vampires in the area. He goes into the comic shop to buy himself a Superman number one. And the Frog Brothers, they're going, no, these are the comics you need to read. These are your survival manuals. And they give him Tomb of Dracula. They give him some of the other horror comic books to explain to explain what's going on in the town so this moment with van helsing bringing um victor in and showing him some of the penny dreadfuls that could be his survival manual to this uh, outbreak of vampires in london it really did remind me of that scene in uh, in the lost boys yeah uh, which i know may not have been the inspiration for the scene for john logan <laughs> because it's a bit more of a popular movie than he's used to but i like that there's a little parallel between the two and it does feel very similar doesn't it it's the idea that somebody has tapped into the fact that there is in existence these supernatural beings yes. but they're using it for entertainment yeah but if you know how, how to read it you actually may be able to use this as your survival manual yeah absolutely i think what's really interesting as well is that you know when van helsing uh, is asking victor do you know the term vampire mm-hmm. uh, and he he says these creatures know the limits and go beyond the limits of life and death mm-hmm. which is effectively what victor frankenstein is doing with others there, there, yeah. there's that synergy between the what van helsing is talking about within this um creature a vampire and what victor is doing through science mm-hmm. and, and through different means in terms of bringing people alive and making their life uh, longer uh, yeah. and more infinite in, in a sense yeah uh, i i thought that was really good absolutely um, and i'm not sure if we're clear that the, the um penny dreadful that was that was in the tv show varney the vampire is a true penny dreadful it was released at the time written by james malcolm reimer uh, he also wrote a penny dreadful called the string of pearls which introduced the world to a very famous uh, british folklore character of sweeney todd um he appeared in the pages of this penny dreadful it's attributed to james michael reimer it's such a long time ago that these attributions get mixed up a, a lot but um, but he's supposed to have been the one that wrote The String of Pearls featuring Sweeney Todd who's become, gone on to become such a famous character, the barber of, uh, of Fleet Street um, killing all the people yeah. and cooking them up in pies, uh, was in a penny dreadful that somebody would have been reading on a weekly basis running down to their local shop to find out how that story completed and it became a massively famous character in film and, and TV over the years. And, music, so. and musicals. And musicals, yes. yes. Yeah. Moving to 
Van Helsing's ultimate demise. Mm. Um, I found this a real shock, and I suppose I have to be honest here, uh, a real shame. Um, but Caliban um, effectively pulls Van Helsing down a, a side passage uh, whilst him and Victor are having a continued conversation about, you know, what they're doing mm-hmm. uh, and, and about vampires, about Hannah, about their lives. Uh, and Caliban pulls him aside and in front of Victor uh, snaps his neck. Um, And you're kind of thinking, oh, I would have loved to have seen more of Van Helsing because this was a real nice juicy kind of intimate moment between Victor and Van Helsing. Uh, But ultimately Caliban here is sending a message to Victor to stop um, allowing what he thinks as his distractions Mm -hmm. um, from his goal to provide caliban with his bride yeah. with his his mate um and lover effectively um so i, I thought this was just like completely unexpected yeah. completely shocking and david warner is such a good character yeah actor as absolutely well. and so many tv shows and so many movies as well that you just don't expect him to go out like that you know he's mid-sentence and just banged over the head, dragged down the street and his, and his neck's broken without any further to do about it. And Caliban throws him to the ground and says, and that's what's going to happen to everybody you love, everybody you talk to that isn't involved in creating this bride for yeah. me. Um, to, to kind of circle back on the episode itself, this is the episode where Caliban has been watching Maud, the actress from the play. He's been treated very nicely by her and he feels there's something kind of relationship between the two of them building up. He feels maybe I don't need a bride built for me because this woman seems to like me. And then he finds out that she has a fiance and she's kind of cruelly joking about him behind his back. There's no way that I'm in love with anybody else other than you kind of thing as he's watching on. So Caliban is massively angry here about his lot in life once again. It's an interesting characters and we talked about with Ray when we were talking about our earlier episodes that Caliban is a character that you absolutely sympathize with or empathize with and then it comes to this point where you're looking at Victor with his only friend that could actually help him out. Absolutely. Someone that might actually put him on a better path than he's been on with Van Helsing. Maybe if the two of them work together it may not be as horrible a life for Victor as it seems to be turning out like but Caliban just interrupts the whole situation and snaps the neck of Van Helsing ending that friendship straight there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But Derek, what is your um, big moment for episode six? I think the battle on the plague ship with um, Sabene, uh, Malcolm and Ethan is kind of a big moment. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's not just because it's a fight sequence or anything like that. It's also because I love the um, moment where Ethan arrives to join these other two that he hasn't really signed up with. Remember, he didn't make the pact with Malcolm that everybody else made. He made the pact that he would work with Vanessa, whatever she said would go, but Vanessa's off on her date with with Dorian. So he's come along with these other two to go on the attack on this on this plague ship. One thing I always find interesting with these scenes, because they're they're high action scenes, right? So they're directed as action scenes. But one thing I really like about this is Ethan doesn't really know what Mina looks like. And within a couple of seconds of anybody with blonde hair attacking him, he just shoots them in the head with his <laughs> I know, amazing guns and skills. And there is moments where you're kind of going well, they look at all the bodies afterwards and go, oh, no, Ethan killed Mina the minute he arrived um, and took her out. Luckily, she's wearing a white dress every time we see her, not not the black outfit of the rest of them. But I do like the scene. I think Sabeta comes across as such a great warrior in yes. here as he takes out his two uh, curved blades. They are 
awesomely cool. So cool. Yeah. So cool. Uh, and he just takes out everybody around him and saves Ethan and Malcolm on multiple occasions through this. I think if he wasn't there, we see that Malcolm would have been killed by the overhead beam that burns and falls down uh, in between himself and Mina and, and the master as she's taken away. So uh, I think it's a really good dynamic scene, but I do like it shows the relationship between all these characters. You know, I feel like Simbene is going along with Malcolm to these excursions or these expeditions to save Malcolm's life and do what Malcolm couldn't do. Um, we hear from Malcolm early on in the episode that he would be willing to sacrifice Vanessa just to save his daughter and he'd do anything to save his daughter. But Sembene is the one that questions, but what happens if she's not, if she can't be saved? And Malcolm's response is, no, but that, that's what happens. If I get her back, then she will be saved. And Sembene going, we both obviously come from two very different places. I understand when there are points when someone can't be saved and I'm willing to do what you can't do kind of thing. Yeah. So um, this whole series really is, a, there's that point of realization from Malcolm, isn't it? That potentially he may have to accept that his daughter can't be saved at some point. And what does he do? Yeah, I love Sam I, th- I think that frank discussion with, with Malcolm and it's repeated throughout the second half of Penny Dreadful as well between Malcolm and Vanessa, but also, um, Vanessa in her own letters to, to Mina mm-hmm. uh, about that love will hold them back from doing what is absolutely necessary, which is to kill. And, and it's always that Malcolm would never be able to do that to his own daughter, Mina. Mm-hmm. And it would require either Sembene or Vanessa to do that. I think Vanessa says that in episode five, where she goes, I love you enough to kill you. And she believes that Malcolm doesn't have that. And um, Sembene thinks that, you know, Malcolm will never see the lost cause in his own daughter. Yeah. So that's really nice. Uh, I love the fight um, for sure. And I, I, yeah, I was thinking there's so much guns being fired off. Um, how do they know that it's, um, Mina or not. I was also kind of intrigued that guns are working on the, the brides of Dracula. Mm. Um, in that I always thought it would have to be, you know, the stake through the heart or the, um, exposure to sunlight right. or, or the, the cross being held up. Uh, but here, I think, matter of factly guns work on them uh and and that's it but john that's just folklore it didn't did capture the truth <laughs> some of the truth but but a gun through the head yeah that'll search you exactly but I'm, I'm not sure whether all of those uh brides of of dracula all those servants of the vampire i'm not sure whether all of those are dead i think it does knock some of them out uh, a lot of times they tend to get swarmed quite a lot they do and um, the the our three main characters tend to tend to get swarmed quite a few times here but i'm not sure whether it's brand new ones over and over again or whether the others are getting knocked down and coming back it's not really put on screen for us uh, that they're actually killing them there yeah uh, until the end i suppose towards the end as the fire is raging um and we see the master escaping with his bride i suppose his proper bride um in mina i think at the end it's only the two of them that are getting out of this plague ship as the fire is raging on yeah that de- definitely it's again it's just one of those things where you kind of go oh the guns are working but i think you're right that it doesn't necessarily work first time and yeah you definitely get that swarming element mm-hmm. from the nest because I- in the same way you know all of these main characters with some better um Malcolm and Ethan have all been jumped on by one of these vampires they are thrashing at their necks and that kind of stuff in other media it would only take a moment 
with a vampire at your neck to be killed or be turned into a vampire, right? So uh, depending on what you're watching, whereas in these ones, they are attacked, they are knocked to the floor, they ha- have got those teeth thrashing at them, but none of them have been bitten by the end of the episode, right? None of them have been bitten by the end of the fight. There's no question over any of them being bitten or, uh, or that any any kind of damage being caused to them. So uh, so that's quite interesting as well. Yeah, um, for sure. Um, I think two final things for me on this point is uh, one of them I had in notes actually mm-hmm. uh, but it, I, I like the fact that they're on a ship in the port of London in, in Bram Stoker's um, book uh, on Count Dracula mm-hmm. you know he comes to London uh, by ship That's right. um, in a coffin filled with the earth of his homeland mm-hmm. um, and so th- this idea that it, this is the master uh, having come to London from well, Egypt in this case yeah. is the suggestion, or or from Transylvania, or you know the Eastern Europe yeah. uh, in the coffin of uh, his own soil is the soil of his homeland. I, I think is 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 a nice little nod to to that, um, and also I just really like the animalistic nature and look of the vampire. It, it's very unrefined compared to. Um, and I suppose a number of Dracula adaptations. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, he he's he's not seen as this suave human formed um person. Mm-hmm. This is someone who is looks ancient and uncomplicated and raw in nature. Right. And I, I find that fascinating. I and yeah. I really like it as well. I like the fact that these are distinct from humans and actually yeah. are in hiding um so i i find that interesting yeah absolutely like it is one of those things that's added as a layer isn't it of 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 fear that not only are they supernatural beings that can tear your throat out and kill you they in some stories they can pass for human as well so that adds that extra layer of oh i just passed a man in the street well maybe he could be a vampire because he's hidden underneath uh, that the vampire part of him is hidden you know but in this case you're right these people couldn't be walking down the street none of them could walk down the street in the middle of the day or at night time and pass for a human that's not what happens they um they are attacking and they're they're like a a nest of of evil creatures that are just picking off their victims as they go they're not trying to pass for human they are completely different so, yes uh, so yeah really interesting in, in this uh, seeing this much i suppose of the vampires in the episode but yeah that was my um my big point for episode six uh, any notes on the episode that we haven't discussed john just for me i loved caliban's face through the grill oh, yeah. uh, as he's looking uh, into Maud's dressing room the actress and mm-hmm. um, it's very cool very spooky uh, and it's because he's given her a book paradise lost by milton that you know it's an epic poem mm-hmm. around the fall of, of of man the temptation of adam and eve but also um the the fall of lucifer um to become satan uh, and we have that kind of interesting exchange where um Maud gives Caliban an orange is kind of in there and talks about her brother who had had an accident and scarred him as well. And his name was Lucifer. Mm-hmm. They call him Luke. So Caliban pr- gives this book, uh, to, to Maud. Um, so 
I thought that was a kind of a nice little moment again, Caliban's fall uh, as a man into this new form, this monster, yeah. the demon, um, as as he's been called previously. Um, sort of th- those kind of parallels there as well. So yeah, I thought that was a nice little uh, spooky moment. It kind of yeah. almost reminded me of Scream with the white mask. Right. His complexion was so pale behind mm-hmm. the grill. The grill is so dark that it, it you just sense that he was wearing almost like a phantom of the opera mask and right. um, that kind of thing actually <laughs> might be more appropriate than the scream mask although but, i was thinking michael myers like i was thinking yeah, of those types is, of horrors yeah, yeah definitely uh, that kind of stalking creature behind uh, behind the grill we didn't mention him in this episode because it's going to be more important in episode seven but the moments between dorian and vanessa where they have sex and she eventually gets possessed by her demon again um I think there, it's a really interesting scene. It's a fascinating scene where we see the two of them uh, interacting with each other and see how close they are in personality, I suppose, or how similar they are in their view of the world. Um, I like that Dorian's kind of seeing her as someone that's an equal to him. Uh, a lot of the time he sees her perspective on life as being quite equal to him. Um, but I also like that, that, Vanessa calls him out about the paintings in his uh, in his house, about them all being portraits. There's no landscapes, there's no animals, yeah. it's all portraits around him. Uh, interestingly, in the last week since we recorded part one of Penny Dreadful, I read the book, uh, The Portrait of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. I just had to, after being so repulsed, I suppose, by the character of Dor- Dorian Gray on the show, I wondered whether Oscar Wilde had a different perspective on the character. And not really, he is an a-hole in the book as well. Uh, he's just a very young a-hole who other people seem to perceive as being a really nice person until he ruins their life. So, uh, so that's kind of the way it, the way it goes throughout the book. Like he, he gets his comeuppance as, as you always would in these types of books, but it's a really good read. Actually, I highly recommend it to you, John, to, uh, to have a read of that. Um, but I kind of like how they've translated this character into the show. He's a little bit less punished by the world than Dorian Gray kind of is in the book. Uh, we have this guy who's kind of floating through life, um, getting everything he wants, but he wants more and more and more, and he's he's ravenous for more and more and more. So getting someone like Vanessa for Dorian would be a massive prize, I suppose. And what happens here is she changes. She has the possession by the demon. I love that moment when they're having sex where she throws him, gets on top, and we just hear the voice of the demon through her going, Oh, what games we will now play. You know, it's almost that Hellraiser moment, you know? Yeah, it's like she's opened a channel or mm. she's let her guard down. Absolutely. And, and that's allowed the dark one to come, come in. Exactly. And do you know what it reminded me of? Go on. Another one. Uh, Angelus returning uh, on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, where we had Angel and Buffy going through this typical teenage kind of romance. And then they finally have sex. And what happens? He has that one perfect moment of happiness. And Angelus, the evil vampire, suddenly appears back into his life, taking over the the lovely an- angel who's been so protective of Buffy. He's now completely changed because he had that one true moment of happiness. And it almost feels like that's the same thing that's yeah. happened to Vanessa here. She's met her match. She's met someone that she could possibly spend some time with. And the two of them ha- have a great intimate relationship. And the minute it happens, the demon rears its ugly head behind her saying, now we can play some games. Now I'm going to possess you again. I just think it's a really good yeah. uh, twist. You know, I know a reference to Buffy. Buffy is seen by some people as being just a standard teenagers TV show, but it had some true moments of great oh, horror really in there. Could, yeah. uh, but there's nothing more horrific, I think, in that show than having Buffy falling in love with a character 
and then that character having that moment of happiness and turning into them into the monster again so uh, so i think there's a, a nice parallel between those two yeah definitely that's it for our points on episode six is it it certainly is excellent we'll take a break and we'll be back with our discussion on episode seven possession Hi, this is Derek from TV Podcast Industries. We hope you're keeping safe and well at this time, and hopefully we're providing a little bit of entertainment to get you through some of the boredom that comes along with uh, what's been going on at the moment. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd love if you subscribe to us at tvpodcastindustries.com, or you can support us by going over to patreon.com slash tvpodcastindustries. You can also support us by leaving a review on your podcast catcher of choice, or of course, you can share the podcast with any of your friends, because sharing the podcast is sharing the love. Remember, we've covered many, many shows over all the years that we've been podcasting. We've covered things like Gotham, The Boys on Amazon Prime, we've covered Pennyworth, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Agent Carter, Luke Cage, Iron Fist. So if you've enjoyed the coverage that you've been listening to, hopefully you'll check out some of the other shows that we've done. And we've got lots more to come. And thank you, as always, so much for listening. This is TV Podcast Industries. We're back with episode seven of Penny Dreadful. Our discussion about the first season of the show is continuing with episode seven, Possession. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hello there, fellow Darklings. I am one of your other hosts, John. Oh, that's pretty good. I like Darklings. Yes. Well, I thought it was kind of cutely affectionate uh, as the the creature that has possessed Vanessa talks to her about my Darkling, mm, like my that. cute little Darkling. <laughs> Very affectionate for an evil Lucifer-esque type creature. Mm-hmm. And this is a massive episode of the show. It's another big Vanessa episode for the show. Um, let's get into our discussion about it, though, John. Uh, the episode is directed by James Hawes. He directs this episode and episode eight, the finale of season one of Penny Dreadful. And he's back for three episodes in season two of Penny Dreadful as well. Uh, he also directed two excellent episodes of Black Mirror. He did Smithereens uh, and Hated in the Nation, two really, really good episodes of that excellent show um so definitely a a person who loves the darkness and humans (laughs) absolutely Uh, once again written by john logan as well john do you want to tell us the synopsis for this episode sure although i'm a little scared Mm -hmm. (laughs) vanessa returns from her outing with dorian gray possessed by her evil spirit the evil inside her clearly knows more about sir malcolm than most she is seemingly normal the next day but remembers nothing of what happened Frankenstein examines her and she transforms before his eyes. He believes she is suffering from some sort of psychosexual break, but Samalcan believes she is simply possessed by the devil. Mm. They do their best to make her comfortable and she is sedated most of the time. Samalcan may have ulterior motives, however, for so desperately wanting to keep Vanessa alive. It does tell you something about the show that Sir Malcolm believes she is simply possessed by the devil. <laughs> That's mm. all. You know, uh, we didn't mention at the end of episode six, but that moment when she arrives home after having sex with Dorian and, and getting possessed by the demon I love, um, she walks in through the door and Malcolm just goes, I have something to tell you. I haven't been completely honest with you. And then looks around at her disheveled uh, visage as she walks through the door. And then she just suddenly raises from the floor and starts spinning. You yes. know, it's that moment where you go, Oh, okay. This is not the way I expected this conversation. To go. <laughs> exactly. It's floating <laughs> Vanessa, um, which is frightening. Yes, definitely. Definitely. John, do you want to give us your big point for this episode? I think you've taken, uh, 
the big point of the episode, really. It is the big point of the episode, and dare I say it, it is the episode yeah. as well. It is the possession of Vanessa in all uh, its forms uh, throughout this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, just to begin with, this whole episode is so powerful, disturbing, and utterly uh, convincing. Mm-hmm. Um for some reason, it's not something that registered after I watched this the first time when I first watched Penny Dreadful that of how good this episode is and, mm. and the performance of Eva Green. But just on this rewatch, I mean, I do have to say it is as good and dare I say, it, if not better, arguably, than the seance episode. Yeah. Uh, because it is consistent throughout the entire episode. Mm. This degradation and haunting of Eva Green, who is, quite frankly, a force of acting in in this episode. She is phenomenal. Um, I don't think I've quite seen anything like this before, ever, whether it's on film or TV. It is committed from beginning to end. Absolutely. And um, I would suspect that those people, including, you know, Timothy Dalton uh, and these very well- um experienced actors all of them could but not only be caught up in all of this because the performances of everyone is um quite frankly uh, amazing uh, so you know i have to say that because yeah. it, it's a tour de force quite frankly I, as i said i don't think we're going to have two big points from this episode so i'll jump in and just say that my note about this was eva green is so unselfconscious in how she's acting you know you can imagine the kind of meeting with john logan and him going through this is all the things you've got to do in this episode and you know some other actors might kind of go oh no but that that's too much to push myself through for an episode but it feels like Eva Green is really putting herself through all of these moments. She is completely uncompromising in what she's saying and how she's acting that moment where she's speaking in tongues, where she starts talking in American and then Northern Irish and then English. And then in Arabic, she's saying, please kill me. You know, these, those moments as she translates through all of those uh, different voices as she's speaking to everybody around her is fascinating, like absolutely brilliant to watch and really terrifying, as you said, John, a really scary episode um, when you when you feel like she's genuinely possessed, I suppose, <laughs> in some moments. Um, I think it's I think it's a really, really good episode. Absolutely. I mean, it, it really is that moment where you do feel that she has recovered. She's sort of lounging on the sofa in in the drawing room. There's mm-hmm. a cup of tea next to her. Um she seems relatively at peace and then Malcolm is speaking to her and then the the possession takes on the form of Mina mm-hmm. where um she talks about her fat mother distraught that her husband was not there and um, tell me more of all the women that you have had sex with on your exploration you know the whores in Zanzibar you know all the people that Sam Alcum has gone through, so to speak, uh, on his way around Africa from the Maasai through to Burundi. Um, you know, this is, um, Mina calling out Sam Alcum, uh, as to who he is, you know, yeah. and you get this great sequence then where the study becomes trashed, uh, as books are flying off, um, the, the shelves, uh, and, you know, it's just really, uh, really, frightening yeah absolutely and as we mentioned in the last episode you know this this 
moment that's happening to Vanessa can't be explained away like it could be in the last episode where people would say, oh, this is just a manifestation of some uh, of some mental trauma that's going on. Whereas in this episode, there's nothing that can explain it other than it being a supernatural experience. I do love the description when asked by uh, Malcolm, is it Mina? Are you possessing Vanessa? And she goes, hmm, somewhat. It's somewhat me, <laughs> but it's also going to be the demon that's, that's possessing, possessing Vanessa. We get the description as well that, um, Mina's saying that her father forced Peter to have sex with all of these women as well as he was going through. Yes. And that was to alleviate Malcolm's disdain for himself, I suppose, but also to make Peter prove himself to be the man that Malcolm wanted him to be. Peter didn't want to do it, but he would, of course, do it if that's what I, what he's asked to by his father. But it's almost like, well, if I'm going to do this and cheat on my wife, my son's going to do it as well. So I can uh, I can placate myself, placate my own mind and believe that I've done something that's OK to do. Kind yeah. Of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. And it is this speaking in tongues to the rest of this company. Um, Ethan Chandler has a great line where he says, you wake up and you get feisty every now and then in one of the lulls of, of this possession, mm-hmm. uh, which is, is really interesting. But she makes her way through, you know, through Victor, uh, as well as through Ethan, mm-hmm. um, all the way through. She is exposing some of their inner secrets Absolutely. to the, the rest of, of the group. You know, she pulls out that Victor is, is, is a virgin. He likes cleanliness and she calls back, um, this, this quote, you know, let not life divide what death can join together as we discussed in the last episode. Um, and that's where Victor's kind of, what is going on here has to has to leave you know it it's a callback to the 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 less intense possession i suppose to some extent that we saw in episode 5 which was just towards the end of that episode mm-hmm. so this is a repeat of, of everything that's gone in this sense um that all the way through um the, there's the talk of having uh, an exorcism that it, it's it's beyond the 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 medical um knowledge and requirements that victor can bring to um vanessa's health absolutely that it requires a spiritual intervention through a priest and and through an exorcism Mm -hmm. which um it it is the moment where some alchemy is reticent to do that um and, and there there is this whole thing throughout that ethan is suspicious of malcolm's motives mm-hmm. uh, and and you get towards the end victor and ethan talking um about w- why is it that um he wants her to to live yeah um, and ethan's sh- is kind of he's not sure that he does um that and and you see the duplicitousness of malcolm when in the moment of her weakness he sees her effectively as a telephone to be That's able okay. to connect into Mina to find out uh, where she is. Um, that he he really becomes very very unsympathetic here mm-hmm. uh, in that moment. Well, you hear um, her pleading with him, saying, "Don't make me do this. Don't make me go back in there and find her." You know, um, it, it's such an interesting episode for for that where. Again, you're supposed to be on the side of this father that's lost his daughter, but he's putting Vanessa through all of this abuse, effectively, at the hands of the demon, you know, to try and use her as a telephone. I like that. Uh, I like that description. <laughs> um, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? And, and I think the 
true indication that every time she's possessed is that she knows something that she couldn't possibly know except for the demon. You know, as you say, John, she quotes the exact phrase that Victor had said to Vincent uh, Van Helsing when they were alone. She quotes exactly the line that Victor said to Vincent in the last episode where he said he was obsessed by this Shelley poem. Yes. Um, So there's no way she could have known that at all. And you see the realization cross over Victor's mind when he hears her say that, that uh oh, this is not going the way I expected it to go at all. You know, I'm not able to just give her a couple of leeches or uh, give her a couple of aspirin and tell her to call me in the morning. You know, um, that that's it. But yeah, these these moments as Malcolm is trying to keep her alive when everybody is giving up on her almost they're they're not giving up. They're going to comply with her wishes and allow her to die. And Ethan's going to be the one to do it. But Malcolm is standing in the way because he wants her for different reasons. Yeah, I mean, the, there is there's that moment where um. In, in a brief period of respite during this time where he's trying to get Vanessa to connect with Mina and she's in this halfway house, this demimonde, where she goes, you are a cruel man. And again, it's just, um, yeah, Malcolm, it comes across really badly here. Yeah. But again, there's a really nice um, explanation of this half world, this um, between, I suppose, heaven and hell, this demimond that it is brought out in the conversation between Ethan and Victor where they, they talk about the, the pacifying of the Native American tribes mm-hmm. and that the first thing they do is take the children uh, and they remove their culture. They, you know, they cut their hair. They take the spiritual prayer bags and they remove them from the tribe. Um, and then they're, they're given a good Christian name and, and are, are taken to a family away from the tribe. Mm-hmm. And what they find is that they know they, they don't fit in that world. So come back to the tribe. But then they're not accepted either by uh, the Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And so they no longer fit in either world. And that's how he describes the situation with Vanessa. Yeah. She is possessed in, in this this world between two different worlds. And she doesn't belong in either mm-hmm. of them, either in the dead or in in the living she is possessed within this 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 halfway house yeah i think um, even ethan calls it unwelcome is the is the term that he used to describe it not just unwanted unwelcome back in the place that they would consider their home you know victor and uh, ethan have had that discussion that malcolm and herself seem to have a close relationship but actually when you scratch the surface of the relationship he's completely using her um to get his daughter back and not actually welcoming her back into his home um which is you know something that we saw from the flashbacks effectively is that she's came with the information from Mina to his home and he allowed her to come in and stay because he can now use her for what he wants uh, from her. So um, absolutely such great moments between these characters as well. And that, and that description of the Native American children being taken away from the tribe is, is such a sad uh, story, I suppose, uh, such a sad piece of history. Um, it's something that happened to the, to the natives in Australia as well. Exactly the same thing, the stolen children from the Aboriginals in Australia. Uh, it's such a sad part of all of our histories, really, that is coming across in the show. Yeah. And it's, it's just interesting to make reference to it. I suppose as well, this is also something about Ethan's history that we still don't know about what's happening, what's happened with him in America and why he's on the run, I suppose, yeah. in the UK. We know that he's on the run, but we don't know anything about his history. But these little moments um, connecting him back into the folklore of, of Americana, uh, which we will see as the series progresses. It's just 
interesting touches that that's where he's uh, that's where he's coming from. But that's his point of view on on the native tribes uh, in in America. Yeah, it's it's really good. But and of course, when Ethan Chandler arrives again, this speaking in tongues, she talks about his his evening with. Dorian Gray, the irresistible boy of mm. our dreams. You know, did you have sex with him or did he have sex with you? You know, we we'll, we should tell Broner. Um, and again, bits of the dark creature come uh, racing out. Leave her, you imbeciles. Leave her to me. Uh, you men, you men, you men. Mm. Um, it, it's just really great. And then the rug gets completely pulled from under your feet when you you have this kind of fairly intimate moment um when ethan chandler is looking in on on vanessa it's the moment where he says you wake up every so often and get feisty every now and then yeah you know he's the one that's caring for her seems the most worried about her physically and personally and certainly compared to malcolm um and then you realize that it is this dark creature again in the form of Ethan yeah. Chandler. This um, is the point that I was going to talk about. Actually, I, I have to say we we'll give all of the praise to Eva Green for her scenes in this. And we've said how great Timothy Dalton is in the series overall, you know, and, and Harry Treadaway has been fantastic in his role, but these moments with Josh Hartnett in this scene with Vanessa, where he's playing the two sides, where he's playing this really evil demon, um, telling her exactly what he wants. He wants her to sit by his side as the world burns, where there's no hearts left of humans because they've consumed them all, and then they're going after God. You know, these scenes are totally believable. That's him being possessed, you know. We've mentioned at the beginning of the series, we weren't going to talk about Josh Hartnett's Ethan Chandler very often because he's the point-of-view character of the audience, which is probably why it's such a shocking moment when he turns and his eyes go black and he is just a vision of the possessed Vanessa. You know, this is the type of thing that's going on in her mind the whole time. Um, when she is being quiet, she's also being abused by this demon at all times as well, you know. So uh, so for Josh Hartnett, I think this is one of his best moments in the series um, yeah. so far. Well, that's it. You, you get his vision for Vanessa here the mm-hmm. you know I want you to be the mother of evil as you say join me at my side to topple God and to rule over everything yeah um that's when he says the darkling as well my yes. darkling and um, which yes. yeah comes across as quite affectionate for an evil um sort of or the king of, of evilness well, I he suppose. is asking her to marry him yes <laughs> and spend all your time at his side so he has to be a little bit affectionate towards her uh, Ethan also gets the cure I suppose for Vanessa in this episode. He's the one that saves her. It goes through the, uh, the last rites from the priest. They'd asked her for, asked him for an exorcism and they're told he can't provide that. But we have Ethan using, uh, Brona's St. Jude's medal to save, uh, the lost cause that is Vanessa. And I think that's a really interesting yeah. one. You know, I, I'm, I'm a Catholic by birth. You know, I know a lot about Christianity from, from growing up in the church and all that kind of stuff. And I always love when movies use relics that I've seen day by day as a, as a Catholic growing up and they use them to these uh, supernatural effects, you know, things like Indiana Jones using uh, the chalice of God as, as a resurrection tool or as, as a tool to keep someone living forever. You know, yeah. those kind of stories, I've always really liked them. So seeing something like 
something as uh, day day to day as the St. Jude's medal, which is something that people uh, use when um, they feel their life life isn't going very well. They'll wear a St. Jude's medal, pray to St. Jude, and they'll look for his guidance uh, more so than God almost saying, you know, you're the patron saint of lost causes and I feel like I'm a lost cause. Can you protect me and help me through my day? And here we have Ethan using it to save Vanessa from a possession from the devil, you know, effectively. Yeah. So he's putting it on her head and saying in Spanish, St. Jude, save her. Um, so I, I really like that that's how they've used this religious symbol, I suppose. Yeah. I, it's, um, it is just intense. Mm-hmm. Everything, uh, about this, like just before the priest is called, there's a moment where her possession is taking a very physical form where her veins are starting to go black. There seems mm-hmm. like the, a tattoo is forming on her chest, but she's scratching at her arms and digging into the walls and the screaming. And you're just like going, Oh my goodness. Just it's really disturbing. And then the priest comes, mm-hmm. um, and you just know she wasn't bound properly to that bed. Uh, I I vaguely remembered that something happened to the priest, but I still was kind of there was a little jump there as she yeah. bites into his cheek. Well, she was bound. The the demon has given her the super strength to break the bonds that have tied her to the bed. That's that's the thing, and I think that's the scary moment, isn't it? Because you think she's been stuck there, she's been tied to yeah. the bed for days on end, not gotten up and walked around effectively and you have this moment where uh, it's revealed to the priest what's in that room and you see him and how terrified he is just giving the last rites and then she jumps up and bites the bites the cheek off him basically yeah and it but i mean she goes absolutely bonkers mm-hmm. and bananas and dare i say ape shit um <laughs> here to be honest that is the room that will have its windows replaced more than any other room in the Murray household. <laughs> um, Fenton already broke one, but all the windows are smashed in. I think you see Victor being kind of flung down the corridor. Every one of them, yeah. Every one of them is gone except for Ethan. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have that tense standoff before um, Brona's St. Jude medal is, is used by him on Vanessa mm-hmm. where he has the gun to, to her head. And again, it's kind of almost linking to this idea of you know do you care enough to to shoot them because she's almost pleading to at this stage for him to take her out of her misery she only believes that it is the bullet left not that there is this um saint jude's medal Uh, and i thought that was just really kind of tense and, and and really nice I think even the build up as well, because the priest is called Matthew and she has this moment where um, she goes, I knew a Matthew once. And again, linking back to episode five with Dr. Matthew Banning at the insane asylum. Mm -hmm. And in this case, the priest is about to use holy water on her. uh, And she goes, he, i.e. Dr. Matthew Banning, he tortured me once with water, uh, with the hydrotherapy, Mm -hmm. and now you're about to do it with holy water. And then all of a sudden, um, this moment where she goes, the other Matthew, the tax collector, where the biblical reference, where going back into the ancient world of the Middle East uh, and the the nascent beginnings of Christianity uh, and... Matthew, the tax collector, mm-hmm. the, um, and that's when the priest is like looking at her going, what? And then she goes for his cheek. Mm-hmm. 
And then the thing that really spooks the priest is when she refers to another Matthew, the tax collector, I one of the apostles of, of Jesus mm. uh, and the biblical testament from uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, about the tax collector and and his death in Hierapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's where you see, you know, just before she bites a chunk out of his cheek, uh, the priest going, "What." is going on here um and uh that's where you realize it is the the ancient evil within her speaking but it is just um it's so engaging i mean i'm i was just completely transfixed Mm -hmm. on the whole of this episode uh, in terms of the intensity of it yeah uh even where you know Vanessa is kind of um, subdued or sedated and and she is quiet, mm-hmm. um, there's an intensity around all the other uh, characters uh, as they're sort of waiting, and because it is agreed that they will be there until she is cured or dead effectively, yeah. as Malcolm says. And this brings up these conversations around why is Malcolm wanting to keep her alive? Yeah. And obviously he does what he does while she is in that vulnerable state. So yeah. Ethan catches him and ultimately that's what prompts get the priest, you yeah, know, exactly. stop messing around. Victor thinks it's a lost cause, hence the St. Jude medal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, she is dying, effectively. Exactly. So it, it is really uh, all on a on a massive knife edge. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do like that thing about the uh, the death of, of St. Matthew. Um, it feels, once again, like she's tapping into something she shouldn't know about, how Matthew died. The demon is saying through her that he crucified Matthew upside down so he could see the hell that he was going to after he died. I think that's what scares the priest as much as it does. Um, it's effectively saying that one of the people that you think, think is a saint ended off in hell because of my taunting and how I killed him effectively. Yeah. So it's such a, a brutal scene for the priest who's just walked into this room and seen this woman tied up to a bed and these three men going, uh, give her the last rites or give her an exorcism. And he doesn't believe in an exorcism. That's the whole point. He doesn't believe in the idea that, uh, that a demon can be possessing someone because the Roman Catholic Church has outlawed all of every type of exorcism. Um, it's one of the things I think we were talking about after we watched the episode, John. I, I find it fascinating that, that Nancy Regan, who played uh, the kid in The Exorcist, was held up as such a great actor for all the things she went through in that movie in the mid-70s. Yet in this episode... And it's only one episode of eight episodes per season. We see um, Eva Green doing such a big job uh, of being possessed. And it's one of the best performances I've seen by yeah. an actress. Um, there's loads of other touch points in, in this episode. We probably could talk about this one more than more than most. But I love Victor talking about the fact that he believes in everything except God. Uh, Ethan Chandler saying he doesn't believe in God. And then you have uh, the conversation between Ethan and Sambene where he's asking asking Sambene, why is he there? Does he just follow Malcolm round because uh, Malcolm saved his life? And then Sambene goes, well, maybe I saved his life and I'm following to make sure he doesn't die. And then he, he's asked, does he believe in God? And Sabena says, I believe in everything. So yeah. he, he seems like this wise character who's seen so much happen in the world and seen what's happened to Malcolm and seen what he's been around. And either he's still adventuring with Malcolm, he's still kind of going, well, if I hang out, hang around this guy, I'm going to see even more crazy stuff that I, I'll be able to handle. Uh, or 
there's something else going on that we'll learn in future. But I do like that conversation between them where, in contrast to both Ethan and Victor saying, I don't believe in God, absolutely, we have Sembene upstairs going, I believe in everything because nothing I've seen has discounted everything, every possibility. Absolutely. I think as well, what really contrasts nicely as well with what you've just said at the start of that conversation between Ethan and Samembe is Ethan asks, what's your story? And he just goes, I have none. Mm -hmm. And then obviously it's teased out. Um, I, I think as well, the interesting thing about the priest is that he almost comes across as bureaucratic. Oh, totally. Um, no, we can't do this because it's being outlawed. Yeah. So I can administer last rites and the annunciation and, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But it's interesting contrast to a priest in the final part of episode eight as well, that Vanessa willingly goes in to talk to at the cathedral. Um, but, you know, we'll discuss about that. But it, there's an interesting contrast there, which I think um, connects these two priests here. But certainly in this instance, completely bureaucratic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be probably the feeling that I would get about the uh, the Catholic Church definitely throughout the 1800s and 1900s they were uh, they were very powerful and were much more of a political organization than than a religious organization almost that would have been the feeling of a lot of people it would have been aren't you here to help us and save us and get us closer to God and they would go no no those are against the rules of our church effectively yeah um it was much more of a punishment uh, society I suppose but I do also love it's a little bit of a trope over the years but we do have our moment of science versus religion in this episode we have that moment of Victor just going do your mumbo jumbo and get the f out of the house basically yeah <laughs> Where he's just like whatever I'm here to help her body uh, you're here to help her um, soul, I guess. Yeah, he says, get uh, out, you ridiculous man, exactly. as the priest has said he can't do an exorcism. Yes. And so Victor is, well, why are you here? Are you even here um, I, I think on, on Ethan, though, as well, I think he believes in the spiritual, mm-hmm. but not necessarily um, how that forms, yeah. in, in a sense. Yeah. So I think he is slightly different from Victor, who is a total... Uh, atheist, definitely. Yeah. Um, I'm almost going to say an ethicist, um, but of course he's, <laughs> he's probably both as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, we do see him anesthetizing himself. In this yes, episode. we see him taking uh, taking some morphine. Um, and I'm wondering uh, that moment where he looks out the window and Caliban is standing outside waiting for him to finish this whole thing. Like I think Caliban knows that the work that Victor's doing for Malcolm is what's giving him the funds to do what he has to do for Caliban, which is why Caliban doesn't just break down the door, snap all their necks and yes. drag Victor out. But I, that that moment where he's outside uh, the window watching in as Victor's looking out, it almost is makes the whole uh, scenes in this episode. It almost makes them claustrophobic for Victor because he's got a possessed woman upstairs who he probably wants to run out the door and down the street, yeah. even though it's fascinating to him as a scientist. But if he runs out the door and down the street, Caliban's there waiting for him to do an even more monstrous act, effectively. So, uh, so I like the, I like the kind of claustrophobia that that creates. I do wonder if it's also a morphine fever dream that he's <laughs> yeah, could seeing Caliban be. outside, but it's still quite likely that Caliban will be there. Definitely. I, I think, um, it, it could be. I mean, as well, you know, there's a great, shot here from the director it's in the hallway and it's just the passage of time because mm. this happens over uh, at least a week uh, this possession um but it, it's just a shot of the hallway in 
uh, Sir Malcolm's house and, and the light moving across the hallway. And you just get that changing light and shade as screams are coming from upstairs. And mm-hmm. it, it really gives a sense to the agony that she's in just from a, a, a distant focus, really, yeah. of, of these men waiting uh, downstairs to, to, to tie her down to give her more sedation. Mm-hmm. I think just one of the final things I want to say about Vanessa here is despite the degradation, despite the attrition that this, this possession has had on her and, and the, the thing inside of her that is scratching to get out, as she describes it, is she's still this stoic, strong woman right mm-hmm. until the moment where really she is offering up herself to be shot by uh, Ethan you know she she asks him what do you want from me and when he tells her as uh, she goes but at this moment my soul is still my own yes um she goes I can't last forever but my soul is my own today mm-hmm. like it's so fiery and like so strong Absolutely. it was it's just amazing and he threatens um, to kill everybody around her and she goes well that's not any concern of mine because I still have the choice for what I do with my soul. Yeah, it's, it's a massively um, important moment for her. You know, it, it's it's just really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, what an episode. Yeah, excellent, excellent episode. Any notes on the episode, John, that we haven't spoken about? I, th- I think the only thing is are just these kind of uh, father and son type chats between Malcolm and Ethan and between Malcolm and Victor. Well, the bromance yeah, begins it, here. Yeah. It, it, it's <laughs> kind of... You know, it, it's different angles. So Malcolm trying to get Ethan to come on this holy grail quest for the source of the Nile. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about, um, again, his, his son. I mean, Ethan says, I don't need another father uh, when he asks him to come. But then Malcolm starts to talk about his son, Peter, dying and being buried on the, the shores of Lake Tanganyika. And yet then goes, but I still went on and surveyed the North Shore, but I'm going back to bring Peter's body back. Mm-hmm. And it's almost Ethan like, well, you say what you need to say to make you feel better. But then with with Victor, um, he just says, Doctor, I don't have a shred of decency left. Um, you know, we've heard all this horrific stuff what, that he put Peter through, mm-hmm. how he's treating Vanessa. And, and we get confirmation from, I think, something I noticed in uh, episode one or two um, that... There is this Murray range in in Africa named after him and not his son, and yeah. he confirms that. But like I wasn't it, even thinking of my son when I named it. Yeah, yeah. It, it it is his decency is completely shredded. He is also a ridiculous man mm. in, in this sense. So um, yeah, but I, I like those kind of interactions. You yes. know, is it Malcolm trying to make up for Peter being lost, and he he sees himself mainly in Ethan, yet with Victor. He's more honest with what he wants to be um, or who he is. Mm. And maybe it is well played by Timothy Dalton because there aren't many moments where he actually expresses regret for what he's done. He kind of talks a little bit dispassionately about it in moments when other people talking about those things that happened to their child would be much more passionate about it. You know, he says his son was dying and he left him at base camp. And when he came back, his son was dead, but he doesn't seem to go if I hadn't left him or if I'd worked harder or, um, or if I'd run out and got medical supplies for him, uh, maybe I could have saved him. He doesn't have those moments of regret that you would expect. He in fact says, 
his son died because something happened to the medical supplies that he can't even remember because he was there to climb the mountain. Uh, he was there to go on and Peter couldn't go with him because he was dying at base camp. So off he went on his own kind of thing. So he, he is very dispassionate about what happened to his son, Peter. As you say, John, even in that moment when he says to Ethan to come with him on the next expedition to uh, to Africa, and he says to him that he's going to go there to get his son back. And Ethan says, don't kid yourself. That's not what you're there. You're there to explore again. I know that, you know, I know the yeah. type of man you are. So, uh, so I think it's really interestingly played in, in there. And um, one of the things that stood out to me in the episode, which I thought was kind of odd was the conversation between Victor and Malcolm, where Victor's asking, is she sexually active? Because he believes that it's a psychosexual experience. And Malcolm says to him, he doesn't know whether she is or not. And it's none of his business whether she is or not, but he presumes she is. I just thought it was interesting why Malcolm would keep that piece of knowledge to himself because he's abs- he absolutely knows that she's sexually active because that's what broke up the two families. Um, her having sex with Mina's fiance led to their two families being separated. He has no particular love for Vanessa or is he trying to hide that he has no love for Vanessa by not breaking that confidence between the two of them? Is that is that the purpose of him not saying it or is it just... I don't know, did they just miss it in, in the writing of the episode, which they they don't normally do? They're very specific about how they yeah. write these episodes. So I just didn't understand why Malcolm would say he didn't know whether she was a virgin or not. He knows for definite she's had sex at least once because it was with his daughter's fiance. So, um, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, so absolutely. Whether she had sex afterwards or not, he may not know. But uh, I just thought that was an interesting uh, moment that was in there. Also very interesting because we're going to be talking about it in our episode eight discussion. But I love the threat from Ethan to Malcolm because it's a very specific threat when he says to him, if you use her and if you do what I think you're going to do, I'm going to rip your throat out is the uh, the exact threat from Ethan. So an interesting one. And just to mention, I know you kind of talked about the relationships that were going on in the episode, but the little moment of bromance between Ethan and Victor, two characters who've kind of been at loggerheads between the two of them, you know, one thinking the other is very brutish and the other one going that he's very book smart, but not very street yeah. smart. And finally, we get this moment where Victor needs to learn how to use a gun. So he goes to Ethan for help. And Ethan delightedly shows him how to use the gun, you know. So there is that moment when the when they're shooting the bottles downstairs, and Victor finally gets a bottle, and then he goes, oh, "Why don't you show me? I know you want to shoot a gun." And there's the little delighted little moment between the two of them as Sabine comes downstairs and tells them that uh, that they're annoying Malcolm upstairs, and they uh, you get that little line from going, "Oh, we've disturbed Dad," you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really, good. really good little moments. Just it, it's good to bring these characters together and have little moments with them because it's felt at times throughout the series not a bad. Not a bad criticism or anything like that, but at times in the series, you're wondering why all of these people would be bound together and kind of need to have little moments between them to have their own relationships as well to kind of bind them a little more. So I thought it was important to have those. I think definitely all these interactions are, are just so nicely layered in yeah. uh, and it, it, it's really um, just fantastic. So, yeah, I think episode two seance and episode seven possession are absolute tour de forces yep. uh, of eva green uh, but also the rest of the cast um it is just amazing what must have been the energy to put into this possession but i think with that that's the end of our episode seven we'll be back shortly after our break uh where we'll talk about episode eight the season one finale entitled grand guignol I am Connor from the House of L. And I am Ray from the House of Zod. We are two of the many, many survivors of Krypton's destruction, and we have made our home in Australia, and dare I say have 
become Australians, for better or worse. But we have also decided to read Superman comics, uh, read Superman books, watch Superman shows, cartoons, movies, basically everything Superman, and from an Australian perspective as well. Whether you're a seasoned fan, like me, or whether you are coming in fresh, wide-eyed, and wanting to learn more like me, then this podcast is for you. Join us for our bi-weekly adventures available on all good podcast catches. So just search for Last Sons of Krypton, a Superman podcast. We'll be coming to you from Australia or some cosmic dimension, wherever we are that week. Up, 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 up and, and away! away. Welcome back, fellow Darklings, or fellow Penny Faithfulers. Uh, yes, we are looking at Grand Guignol, which is the season one finale, episode eight of Penny Dreadful, mm-hmm. the first series. I am one of your hosts, John. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. I like how you say first series, because technically it is. Season one, two, and three make up the first series, and season four, which is... Petty Dreadful City of Angels is series two, right? Yeah. That's that the way it works. Kind of. <laughs> Always confuses you when, when you're in the UK and Ireland. We have TV shows that go for eight episodes and some that go for five or six series and some that go for five or six seasons. All that stuff is, it can be very confusing at times. <laughs> but we're on to the final episode of season one of the excellent Penny Dreadful. I think this series has been great to rewatch, hasn't it? Definitely. Um, I have seen it in a new light actually i think as i said um episode seven has just absolutely leapt out at me uh more than it ever did when i first watched it Mm. um and i I think a lot of the intricacies have leapt out at me more than they did when i first uh watched it so it's been great re-watching definitely definitely. and it's the new watching Well, as we get to the end of our season one discussions of Petty Dreadful, make sure you stay subscribed to our podcast on tvpodcastindustries.com. And if you're not contributing to us over on Patreon, please go over to patreon.com slash tvpodcastindustries.com. The episode reviews that we're doing for Penny Dreadful are being released early over there. Uh, you'll get access to our next episode, uh, season two, episode one, uh, first over there before we release it on our main feed on TV Podcast Industries. But we're getting through all 27 episodes of Penny Dreadful before Penny Dreadful City of Angels comes out at the end of April. So we'd love to have you join us over there. Let's get into the season one finale, Grand Guignol. The episode was once again directed by James Halls and written by John Logan. John's written all eight episodes of the show. I keep reminding myself to say his name, that he's the writer of each episode, because so often I forget, and then all of a sudden somebody else comes up as a writer for an episode somewhere. So I just want to remind, he did all eight episodes of this season. He certainly did. (laughs) Excellent. John, do you want to give us the synopsis for the final episode of season one of Penny Dreadful? Sure. When Vanessa recovers from her ordeal, she believes she knows where Mina is to be found, the Grand Guignol Theatre, where she saw the play. Sir Malcolm prepares for their visit to the theatre that night by arming himself with a newly designed weapon. They come face to face with the evil they have been searching for all this time. Meanwhile, Brona is on her deathbed and Frankenstein offers to take care of the body. Vanessa tells Dorian Gray there can be nothing between them despite the obvious attraction they have towards one another. Caliban is fired from the theatre and returns to Frankenstein's laboratory, 
while Ethan's past catches up to him. And finally, we can talk about who Ethan is <laughs> in, this, in this episode. I feel <laughs> like for seven episodes, we've been pretending that we didn't know that Ethan was a werewolf uh, throughout the show. But certainly on the rewatch, there's loads and loads of indicators that he's been the one that's been uh, slaughtering uh, people around the around town, maybe last month at the last full moon. And that's why there hasn't been another killing uh, since that time. Um, but yeah, finally, we can talk about it in this episode Loads of indications of the type of violence that he's subjected on other people uh, and that he has another darker side that we haven't seen. So uh, nice to get it confirmed in the final episode of this season. Yes. <laughs> and nice to finally be able to talk about it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. John, do you want to give us your big moment from the final episode? I think it's ultimately um, the relationship of Malcolm and Vanessa mm-hmm. uh, and how it moves through to the final battle uh, at the Grand Guignol. Um, where effectively Malcolm makes his choice as well. Um, you know, this relationship has been fraught, brittle, antagonistic, and exploitable. Um, in, in some cases, you've kind of been wondering whether there's anything there at all between them Absolutely. and whether it's only that thin thread of, of Mina. Um, but I suppose the question I ask myself up front is, but is it redeemable? But I think as Vanessa understands where Mina it is being hidden at the Grand Guignol. Um, I, th- I think she hears um, this phrase, there will be no happy end, the claw will slash and the tooth will rend. And I think I actually hear that at the end of episode seven That's and right. repeated. Uh, then Malcolm and Vanessa um, really begin to move towards that. But it, it's much more frank. I think we we get here that Malcolm begins to say that if he cannot save Mina, then he will end her suffering. Finally, yes. Fi- yeah, exactly, finally. Um, and we had that in episode five as well with Vanessa saying she is the only one that loves her enough to, to kill her. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this moment, um, Malcolm realizes that he may need to end uh, her suffering. But he, you know, there's this real frank conversation between the two of them, which is so brutal in his um, study where he goes, uh, I'm using you. You are invaluable to me. Um, but if I have to sacrifice you above my daughter, I will do. He will kill Mina to save her from suffering if he can't save her. But if in order to save her, it's to throw um, Vanessa under the proverbial bus, then he will do it. Carriage, John. Or, yes, horse-drawn carriage. <laughs> then um, he will do. Yeah. Um, so it, it's the interesting thing is that it's kind of, this is where I'm placed on the board. Um, but as they go, uh, as that company goes to the Guignol, uh, to the theatre, and can I just say, theatres are massively creepy when it, they're not lit and <laughs> there's no one in there. Yeah. I, I was just there going, oh, no, need a cushion for this one. But There's definitely a few moments where you just jump, even even a moment where I think Malcolm's walking one way and Vanessa's walking another and Vanessa comes out of the darkness beside Malcolm and it's like, oh, okay, it's just Vanessa. <laughs> exactly. <right." laughs> um, and this is where the, the, the vampire is here with his, with his brides. We, we get that because we have that lovely moment um where the the camera pans up after um caliban has effectively been fired by vincent from the theater because of events that happen with Maud, the actress but on leaving 
where the camera pans up through the rigging, through all the infrastructure, you know, the sort of the, the walkways where the riggers are, are working on, the lighting, the, the, the thunderboard, all that right to the top. And you have this vampire sleeping in the rafters uh, of the Grand Grignol. So cool. Uh, really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know he's there, and you know that at some point uh, they are gonna <laughs> they're gonna get involved. Uh-huh. But they have this really good battle uh, underneath the stage between Sembene, Ethan, and Victor. And again, they're kind of overwhelmed by the the brides of vampire, even though they've been firing uh, away. Uh, Sembene has a great drop through the trapdoor oh, with his cool. two uh, curved daggers. Mm-hmm. Uh, unsheathed i really really like that Uh, but this battle royal under the stage which ultimately is only resolved when malcolm uh, manages to kill the vampire with his needle Mm -hmm. um but ultimately then it's mina who comes in and takes over and takes vanessa hostage and 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 really says she doesn't want to be saved uh my master and so the question is is the vampire that's just been killed by malcolm is he the master? Mm. Presumably not. Presumably not. Um, yeah. Because she is still, she's not wilted to the ground like all the rest of the brides underneath mm-hmm. the stage. So the suggestion here is very much that this isn't the main vampire. This isn't the Dracula, so to speak, the mm-hmm. the source of it all. Always uh, a great r- a rug pull. In it it really story, is, yeah. isn't it? Because she's effectively saying that everything that she's done, where she's created this passageway uh, between herself and Vanessa, and between herself and her father, where she's visited them in their dreams or in uh, in their uh, visions and told them what they needed to do to save her. All of those things were her trying to attract Vanessa to her master so that she can be his bride, that she is part of the plan, effectively. She's gone way yeah. beyond the point that she can be saved, because why would she want to be saved? She'll live forever beside her master, who she truly believes in. So it's a great little moment at the end of the series here. Yeah, and Malcolm, in this moment, makes his choice. Uh, you know, he shoots Mina so that Vanessa can get away, and mm-hmm. she's lying there on the stage um, next to Vanessa, where they've both landed. Um, and she goes, but I'm your daughter, as he's got the gun pointed up. And he goes, I already have a daughter, and shoots Mina and kills her, not mm-hmm. Vanessa. Um and I was kind of like, yay, this is really good. Uh, good on you, Malcolm. Uh-huh. Um, whether it's redeemed himself from everything that's gone before, I don't know. But I think there is that moment where he realizes that Mina is lost. Um, and actually, it's not about ending her suffering because she's no longer suffering. It's As you say, it's gone beyond that. Mm-hmm. So um, I kind of really, I, I, I'm glad that that got all resolved. Just a quick aside, the gun used uh, is a new automatic weapon mm-hmm. that uh, Sir Malcolm uh, gets from the gun shop. Um, but in there, we do have a, a nice little moment where he bumps into Madame Carly, mm-hmm. uh, who is actually Evelyn Paul from Brighton, uh, as she calls herself. But, <laughs> Everyone um, likes a little bit of drama. You know? <laughs> exactly, but... Ominously for season two, she does say, I hope we do bump into one another again. And there is a lot of bumping in to uh, Evelyn Paul in season two, um, which I think everyone will enjoy. Yes, absolutely. But definitely there's a a look on her face as Malcolm leaves that, you know, this wasn't a casual 
bumping into each other that happened. That was an absolutely planned meeting after their last meeting at the uh, at the seance. She wants to know all about Vanessa or all about Malcolm, one or the other. Yes, uh, from their last meeting. So uh, great to see the character back, and you know, I love that kind of interaction. I always like that, you know, where the veil is pulled back from the last time you saw the character. It's like. I'm not Madame Kelly. I'm actually just even Paul. Um, that's just a that's just a gig I do on Saturday nights for the rich. I had to make a bit of cash, you know. <laughs> kind of a kind of an interesting one. And um, that is the big moment, really, from the episode is the battle because it's all been building to the battle. But everybody gets an ending at the end of the first season. I do wonder when watching this, where they, you know, the way that that shows weren't renewed uh, as quickly as they are now, where you don't get two seasons to begin with. I was wondering whether they were trying to kind of give a big cliffhanger for everybody's story at the end of this show or were they trying to wrap some of them up and give a bit of intrigue as to what might happen because everybody does get an ending that's what, kind of my big point from uh, from the final episode of season one and um, Caliban being thrown, thrown out of the theater you always already mentioned but I love Vincent's final moment with him where he gives him a truly heartfelt hug um Ray mentioned when we were talking about the first episode of Caliban uh, arriving at the Grand Grignol that Vincent was this character who welcomed him with open arms into the theater um and they did have a place for him there and it was a home for caliban and that's exactly what vincent wanted for him but i love that his final line to uh to caliban when he's leaving vincent says to him remember us as better than we are um because he wanted this to work he didn't want to have the actors for example attacking caliban because they don't like the look of him yeah he thought this would be a safe place for uh, for caliban to be and it turned out not to be a safe place for him yeah i, I love that moment from vincent uh with the hug and, and just um you know he's tried everything he can and he yeah. is you know he's sad that he's having to say goodbye to to caliban in fact he says I'd prefer to get rid of her than, than you, but otherwise I, I am a slave to the public. Um, you know, it is more the actress they want to see on stage yeah. in these bloody horror shows. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, really nicely, uh, done here. Now, in fairness, I do understand, uh, Maud's reasoning for trying to get rid of Caliban. That's yeah, absolutely. Where he comes in with the orange similarly to the way that she came into his home effectively with the orange last time um he's trying to do the same to her to show that he cares for her but he's obviously taken the cues uh completely differently than how they're meant um and she's alone she's in this room alone half dressed i suppose as well um he makes reference to the fact that her boyfriend comes in all the time so why can't he do it and then she realizes that not only is he getting mixed signals from her? He's also been watching her in her dressing room. So, uh, and then he attacks her effectively. So, yep. you know, all of these reasons are totally understandable as to why Maud would try and get rid of him because she doesn't feel safe anymore. Um, but it is really sad for Caliban that his, yeah. the only place he's been able to call home, he has to go from exactly what he says to uh, Victor when he arrives back. I uh, love that the, the opening line as it cuts into that scene is Victor going, well, you can't stay here. <laughs> it's like, but you created <laughs> yeah. me. You walked away and the only place i found that could be a home for myself they've kicked me out of so i'll stay for a while it's not it's not by choice i'm staying but i'll stay for a while and then i'll get out of your hair you know and it, it comes back as well almost to proteus uh this idea that you know these monsters uh these demons of proteus and caliban um actually aren't that yeah um you know I think victor has got the gun to his head he thinks that caliban's unaware of it but 
Caliban is talking about this futility of his request for a partner and um, you know that what he feels and it, because of his physical look is something that is not going to be reciprocated and it destroys his soul because of the experience with with Maud and he goes why did you allow me to feel yeah um I would rather be the corpse than the man I am yeah um you know there's this sense of futility around love because he it will never be loved because of how he looks. Mm-hmm. Um, and Caliban says, pull the trigger, but Victor has that moment where he pulls back yeah. um, and rests his hand on his shoulder mm-hmm. and then becomes committed to effectively um, getting him his bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. So, you know, you see the, the sort of reluctant Victor smothering Broner, effectively. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, remember... The whole central thesis of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is who's the monster, the monster that's created or the one that's created them. Yeah. So uh, so having these moments with Caliban, having that discussion, why did you make me feel? Yeah, bring me back from the dead. I can be a walking corpse for you if that's what you want. But why did you give me my feelings back? Why did you give me the ability to feel when I can do nothing about it? You know, um, there's a, a lovely line from, and that's why you think there's something between himself and Maud. There's that lovely line from where, where he says, um, happiness is for somebody else. Happiness is for other people. That's not something I'm supposed to feel. I, I, I don't expect to live anything of my life in the way other people live it, you know? So a really understandable character in Caliban here, um, and yes, Victor, you know, effectively reanimating somebody without thinking of any of the consequences is what makes him his own monster in, in the same way that we talked about Dorian Gray being the monster that he is. Uh, Victor is the monster here. Um, you mentioned Brona. It is really sad that we do lose Billy Piper's Brona in the way that she dies. Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting that we have Ethan by her side at the beginning of the episode, knowing that she is about to die effectively, but he still walks out the door and goes off with, uh, goes off with Malcolm on their next uh, expedition. He obviously knows he has to follow the, that expedition, but the, but even that he would leave Brona on her deathbed, but he calls in Victor afterwards to try and help alleviate her pain at least. Um, and as you say, John, he, uh, Victor sends him away and, uh, realizes that Brona could be the perfect bride of Frankenstein. Now, there is a little problem with this plan of Victor's. I know he doesn't have an extremely large circle of friends, but <laughs> <laughs> but one of them is one Ethan, of them is Ethan who is bound to recognize uh, his former lover. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Not the greatest of plans. Here. No. And I don't think Ethan would be majorly happy if not only <laughs> Probably does he not. reanimate his girlfriend, the woman he loves, but he reanimates his girlfriend, the woman he loves, and passes her off to somebody else as well. <laughs> I'm not too sure whether Victor's thought out this plan either. What a wicked web uh, Victor has spun for himself here. I yes. think he's very good at thinking, you know, a couple of steps in the future, like yeah. five or ten minutes. But but what could happen if doesn't seem to be something that crosses Victor's mind very often. Um I also don't think Brona as a character is someone that's going to react very well to reanimation either. Maybe not, but I do think that the pathway of Brona once she is reanimated is hugely interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not what you expect, ultimately. Okay. Yeah. 
for for me anyway. Well, this is a rewatch. It's yeah. not so much about um trying to keep the spoilers down. I mean, I'm not going to go into it here, but please don't, because I actually don't remember but a lot she, of her stories. So, yeah. The path she takes is, is fascinating. It, it empowers her, and a mm-hmm. bit like um that empowerment of Caliban earlier on in the season, where he says, "I am the future." You know, you are things of the past, and. Um, she most definitely uh, takes it and runs with it in an unexpected right. way, I think. Right. Definitely no spoilers for that because I'm looking forward to watching season two of the show again because I haven't seen that one in quite a long time. Um, also, just to mention the closing of Ethan's story in this episode or the opening, I suppose, of Ethan's story at the end of season one because we didn't know much about him. We knew his father had wanted him to come back to America. We saw some letters. We saw some mention of the fact that he was on the run. He was in hiding and I suppose run away with the circus is kind of what he did as the gunslinger traveling the world doing uh, doing these uh, these tricks uh, around the world and then left it to go into the employee of Malcolm. But we hadn't known much else about him. Uh, we see that actually Ethan's being hunted by the Pinkerton detectives uh, from America to drag him back to the US if he doesn't go willingly. He'll play cards with him on the way back he'll even let him win a couple of hands but if he doesn't go willingly they'll drag him back in chains um yeah they didn't plan for uh for ethan being a werewolf did they no not at all <laughs> um i, I kind of like their two interactions in uh-huh. the bar i think the first one you know you get a sense well his daddy wants him home so you're coming home yep. so his dad sounds like a very powerful man back in the u.s mm-hmm. uh, but also that's just a good old kind of bar fight um Certainly you is. know of the western variety just yeah. at the mariners Inn on the docks in london and in real life that bar is the stag's head in Dublin. yes where myself and john went over a couple of pints with our mates about a week ago so it was so interesting to see because they didn't really redecorate the bar very much for the scene the actual bar still looks very similar to that still the round tables against the wall and still the bar where you order your beers from but it's so interesting seeing it with nobody in it because it's one of the busiest bars in dublin yeah it's, it's Most jammed so, absolutely so they must have filmed that at about seven o'clock in the morning or something <laughs> i would say so it's jammed <laughs> normally but it's a lovely bar go see it if you come to dublin go to the stag's head because you can see in the establishing shots for the next scene you can see the dame tavern which is the bar directly across the road from it um in uh, in that area of dublin it's just outside temple bar if you've ever been to dublin uh before you'd probably recognize that area but uh, go see it it's a lovely uh, lovely locals bar but very busy very busy (laughs) um i I like when they sort of catch up with him again that he goes we'll chain you up like a monkey and he goes there's no monkeys here i just think it's a really nice line as you know you see his knuckles crack as he grips the table and he turns uh his eyes are kind of those that bright sort of yellowy green as he's turning into the werewolf and blood against the window always good uh, and it pans back and there's that full moon over the mariners in yeah. um, which is really nice and you see him dazed the next morning mm-hmm. uh, as well so again like we had in episode one we had him dazed to begin with and yeah like in episode three i think it was as well after another killing we see him dazed waking up in the morning so uh, so with nice little touches that those are connected back to then um very tough job for any uh, makeup artist, I guess, or costumer, uh, that has to do a werewolf, um, to make sure that it doesn't look like Teen Wolf. So <laughs> always smart. And I think James Hall took the cue from that where you make sure that they're only on screen for a, a millisecond or a few seconds. So it gives you the impression that there's a werewolf that looks like a man with a wolf's face rather than having it on screen for a long period of time. So, um, if we're going to see Ethan as werewolf often in the next season, I'm hopeful it's more wolf than 
man with wolf's face because yes. i just think it's a difficult thing to pull off uh, without looking silly so i can understand why they would hold it in the background for the whole season until this last this last moment but he looks great like i think it's i think it's fine it's not it's not on screen long enough to have any kind of criticism of it i think it looks absolutely fine on screen for the match time that it's on screen but it's just one of those questions that's in my head going yeah but if that was a whole scene or if people were talking to him for a minute then it might look a bit off so i'm glad they did it this way in the show yeah the thing is what happened to the rest of the people having a quiet drink that night in uh the mariners inn oh, so dead. i presume yeah they're kind of slaughtered <laughs> oh, along with mr kid and warren roper the two pinkerton agents mm-hmm. yeah so uh R.I.P. Mariners uh, regulars, I think uh, you are done and dusted. I think Vanessa also gets her um, ending as well, where she goes to church and and has uh, a conversation with the priest of that church. And it's where I kind of just wanted to say, uh, you know, there's a kind of contrast with the priest in episode seven on the possession, Mm -hmm. where she says, I believe in monsters, I believe in demons, I believe in the devil. Uh, which I think is one of the taglines of the show, actually. Mm. Um, and he, he talks about um, an event uh, in Wales where he came from uh, with a child who had been possessed and it destroyed the entire village. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, he looks back at her and he, he, he reflects to her something that also Dorian Gray has said is, do you really want to be normal? Mm-hmm. And she's not allowed to answer that as credits roll the lips part she is about to say something Mm. but we don't know Uh, and it's interesting as well that he's asking her the same question that dorian gray um has also been saying yeah yeah absolutely i I love these dispensing of uh of stories from past because usually you'd expect them to have a more uplifting ending than uh, what happened to the child that you were trying to help from possession no he died (laughs) <laughs> it's like yeah. okay not the most uplifting as story. did the rest of the village as did everybody yeah. else in the village yeah um but yes that's how season one of penny dreadful ends with an open question for what we know definitely is a season two because we have the uh the blu-rays downstairs for more episodes of season two um but i do wonder at the time you know whether everybody knew there was going to be a second season of the show because i think i mentioned in the first episode one of the things i found fascinating re-watching penny dreadful again is how much you're expected as an audience to know about the characters that you may not know about. Not everybody knows about each individual character that was in Dracula or in Frankenstein or in, um, or in Dorian Gray. You know, not everybody knows about all of those characters. So I think as the show had progressed, it felt like it was already a niche show. And by, by doing that, you create a niche within the niche for horror. So, yeah. um, so, I was wondering whether this was a foregone conclusion that I was going to get a second season, you know, um, but they've set up enough that it's going to be an interesting season to see what happens with these characters. And they they have closed off the first season storyline about Malcolm getting his daughter back, uh, where he has made the decision that actually his daughter is unsavable. So he's going to take her out instead of uh, killing Vanessa to save his daughter or something like that. So any other notes about the episode that we haven't discussed, John? I think the only uh, one for, for me is the meeting of Dorian and Vanessa, um, you know, yeah. Dorian really is gets, gets the cold shoulder from Vanessa, um, at Malcolm Murray's because she knows, um, the events in his bedroom effectively opened her up to that second possession. Mm-hmm. Um, and she comes to the botanical gardens, um, so to end their, their relationship, um, which, 
there's a nice motif of the orchid that you have seen in earlier on in the season when they first met which is alive and starting to bloom is starting to die and wither um, as is their intimacy and flowering relationship Mm -hmm. Um, and it's ultimately that Dorian probably for the first time in his life Vanessa says you're experiencing rejection as he leaves and a dusty tear duct starts to reactivate uh, in Dorian's eyes as he uh, lets a solitary uh, tear down his face, yeah. which is kind of is like is amusing to him. He doesn't quite know what it is, almost. But um, Vanessa, um, in this moment, is saying we have to keep our distance. Yes, well, um, he wanted every experience. And he wanted experiences that he'd never had before, and that's definitely an experience that Dorian Gray has not had is rejection. So, yep. uh, so I I love that because it does feel like someone who's read the book Dorian Gray has gone. Actually, this guy needs a little bit more comeuppance than he did uh, within the book. What would be really good is if someone says. I don't want your affection, especially someone that he really finds a connection with. So, a uh, lovely touch by John Logan of how he incorporates uh, Dorian Gray into this show, because Dorian's an atrocious human, as we've said before, so he deserves to have a bit of rejection as well. So. Yeah. Um, the only other two bits are when the two Pinkerton agents meet uh, Ethan in the bar for the first time, they make reference to cherry phosphate, which is kind of the precursor to cherry aid. Oh, okay. So, unless the phosphate makes it nicer uh, and less tasting of artificial cherry is probably <laughs> awful yeah. um like and yeah. uh ice chip uh in because presumably he's got a warm beer in the bar that they found him in uh, and in the the u.s they are, are using this new uh ice chips mm-hmm. or ice cubes because obviously they in the past would have chipped off a much bigger block of ice mm-hmm. just some nice little uh bits of terminology around old drinking period thoughts I like yes it. i like it um one other thing i just wanted to mention just the grand guignol theater i've mentioned before on the podcast i'm a huge fan of anne rice and her and her vampire novels the vampire chronicles um the grand guignol theater was an inspiration for quite a central moment in the vampire chronicles by anne rice where um they talked about the theater de vampire in uh, in paris a theater where vampires effectively performed plays on stage using some of their victims and kill them on stage in front of an audience. Um, so another really creepy inspiration for art based around vampires, I suppose. So similar to this theatre in the show where the audience is reacting to the piles and piles of blood spurting out of uh, of the woman uh, who's in the play, but she's not killed, of Maud, who's in the play. She's not actually murdered on stage, whereas Anne Rice's twist on the Grand Guggenel Theatre was it's actually run by vampires who are performing their art in front of an audience. So... Uh, nice little touches, but cool that, that there is a connection between the two there. That's the end of our thoughts about season one of Penny Dreadful and episode eight particularly uh, in this particular discussion. John, what do you think of the second half of season one of Penny Dreadful? I thought this was amazing. Uh, I am definitely giving this five of cups out of five. Nice. Uh, yes. In reference to the tarot cards, which relates to sadness loss loneliness despair which i suppose at the time if you didn't think there was going to be a season two Mm -hmm. you probably were feeling around the end of uh the series um but it's it's weird because my recollection of the second half of season one when i first watched it was that it wasn't as good as the first part right 
and that has totally changed and, and flipped on its head now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I absolutely loved the second half of this. You have in the possession episode as much, if not more, of a tour de force um, than the seance uh, in the performance of Eva Green. Mm-hmm. You have a flashback that is done so nicely and just layers the the background of Mina, Malcolm, Vanessa, Peter, and they have real impact on episodes six, seven, and eight. Mm-hmm. You have the big battles in the in in the ship uh, moored at London Docks mm. and in the Grand Guignol, you have uh, all these different complex questions uh, and motivations that really uh, get nicely rounded out and the realisation, um, as we may have suspected anyway, that Ethan is a werewolf um, and is part of this supernatural um, grouping as well. So for me... Absolutely loved it, um, and I'm so glad they decided to do a season two. And I'm so glad we're going to rewatch uh, season two as well, because I know for a fact there is one moment in season two, at least if I can call from my memory, that probably almost made me not want to keep watching. It was so <laughs> frightening. In excellent. fact, there were two. There were two. Oh, right. Excellent. Really looking forward to that. Yes, and they involve dolls. Oh, I see. Spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> Uh, overall on season one yeah it was great to revisit the show i do remember how much i loved the first season of the show and it's interesting isn't it that how things are different when you look back on them now you know we, we uh, as i mentioned on the episode the the flashback episode of, of six um when i watched that it just felt like a period drama whereas the rest of the show even though it's set in a victorian setting feels like a gothic horror yeah, there's two different things to me. And I made the distinction watching episode six going, yeah, maybe the show isn't for me because they've just done the thing I didn't want to watch. Oh, kids talking about who they're going to marry when they grow up. Oh, isn't this great? Uh, but when you go back and watch these episodes all in order, um, you can see how important doing that episode was. So I'm really glad we've gone back and, and watched this season. And I'm really looking forward to seeing season two and three, because unlike you, John, I do remember season one of the show being great. And then I wasn't sure how I felt about season two and three. So I'm really intrigued because I've forgotten a lot about season two. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in season two and then what happens in season three as well, because I know they're very different stories than the first season. Definitely. I think season three for me is the one that I can't recall in the same way as season one and season two. Season two definitely takes a different turn, but it's still connected much more centrally to the group that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just introduces another supernatural element, which is fantastic. Excellent. Excellent. We'll leave it there for our thoughts about Petty Dreadful. If you want to send us your thoughts, we'll give you a penny. Penny for your thoughts. Uh, pop us in some feedback to feedback at tvpodcastindustries.com or join us over in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash tvpodcastindustries. If you're not subscribed to the podcast, please go over to tvpodcastindustries.com, subscribe to the podcast over there, and you'll get each of our episodes as they come out on our main feed. You can also send us some voicemail if you want to hear your voice in the podcast. Go over there as well, tvpodcastindustries.com, and record up to 90 seconds of your thoughts. We love hearing from you about your thoughts. Even if you don't make it in time for an episode that we're discussing, we still love to hear your thoughts about what we're discussing on the show. As we've mentioned multiple times now, you're probably sick of hearing us say it, we do release these episodes of Penny Dreadful first over on our Patreon. So if you want to get them, the next ones first, 
might even be right now. We might have an episode up there that you haven't heard yet. Go on over to patreon.com slash TV podcast industries and donate to us at any level and you'll have access to any of the episodes that we have over there. Thank you so much for joining us for Penny Dreadful Season 1. Yes, uh, we will be continuing our rewatch of Penny Dreadful Season 2 on our Patreon account. And of course, over on our main feed on TV Podcast Industries, we are continuing our weekly look at the Star Trek Picard series Mm -hmm. uh, in our podcast. And this um, Penny Dreadful rewatch is all linking up to the release of Penny Dreadful City of Angels on April 26th uh, this year. Uh, but in the meantime, we are also continuing our weekly look at the Star Trek Picard series on our main feed. Mm-hmm. Please uh, check on over there uh, to listen to the podcast and our discussion uh, of the Picard series. Absolutely. Yes. Thanks so much for joining us for our discussions about Penny Dreadful. It's been great going back there. Hope you're enjoying it as well. As always, fellow Darklings, it's a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, Can't wait to come back uh, and chat to you some more about Season 2 Penny Dreadful. But remember, keep watching, keep listening, and importantly, keep screaming. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.